Ronnie? Are you? I clicked invite to speak. So if that's not work, oh wait, okay, we're gone for now. Hi everybody, I'm excited to do this in a few minutes. It seems like Ronnie will probably be back in a second and I assume Quentin is gonna join soon too. Hi Ronnie. Hey Divya. It turns the out that- quality seems good to me. Yeah, it turns out that you actually can only speak on the app and not on the web version, which is sad. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. That's what I learned. Yeah, I don't know. How's your day been? Anything on your mind that's easy to talk about in the few minutes before Quentin gets here? Uh, Quentin is here. Maybe we should tell Quentin that you have to do it oh. on the app. I'm sorry. No, no, I didn't. I did, it didn't make him a speaker yet. I just didn't see. That was recent. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. I've now invited him to be a speaker. And Quentin, please, if you can't figure it out, message me and I don't know, maybe we'll try to figure it out. Also, I'm, am I saying, is Quentin the right way to pronounce it? I've never said this out loud before. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, I had to let uh, Twitter have access to my microphone. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so we're we're here. I don't know. Um, do you guys want to wait a minute, or should we just dive in? It's all recorded, so people can always go back and listen. Um. Uh, I'm down to wait a minute. I guess. Okay. I don't know. Cool. Yeah. yeah let's let's talk about low stakes things until. At least five oh five. Then that's my current plan. Yeah. Cool. Do we know like how many, or have an estimate of how many people we're expecting? No, I really have no idea. I guess I could try to look how many people listen to the one with Rocco and Alexandrus, and they they both retweeted it, and they have more followers than I do, so that could be more. But um, I bet many of the people who are interested are the same people. Okay. Um, Hi, Quentin. I've never met you. Yeah. It is nice to meet you. I don't think I've met you either. Um, nice to talk as well. I told some friends that I was going to be uh, arguing on Twitter later, so I had to go. And they asked me, who would I be arguing with on Twitter? And, they, and I said, Quentin. And they were like, ah, this seems like a classic person to argue with on Twitter or something. Uh, okay. Um not sure how to update on that information, but thank you for providing it. <laughs> sure. Quentin, are you, um, like, have you done explicitly double crux type conversations before? No, I haven't. Cool. Yeah, I know. Are you familiar with the framework? If not, I think I, I'd vote for talking a little bit about the spirit of that, if not about anything more precise. Um, I've heard the name, but don't really know any details. Other than... Yeah, Ronnie, you wanna you wanna weigh in? Sure. Yeah. So I'm very into it in principle. Although I find that most of the time that I try to do it, like I don't know. There there's like there's like an ideal version of it in my head, which I feel like I don't realize often enough. But like I still would like to find double cruxes. So basically, um 
something like, you know, if Quentin and I have a disagreement about P, where I believe P and Quentin believes not P, we want to find some Q such that I believe Q and Quentin believes not Q. And then like, I believe that, like, if I were to find out that not Q is true, I would change my mind on P and I would start believing not P. And also Quentin's like, I currently believe not Q, but if I did believe Q, uh, I think I would change my mind on P and start believing P instead of not P. Um, and like, I do think finding Qs for, you know, when we find a P that we disagree on, finding a Q that has this like relationship to the P is like pretty sweet. Um, because it just like, also like part of the hope is that like the Q is somehow like more operationalized like m more something that we can like directly test. Uh, and then you can also like iterate on this. If like, it's a little bit more operationalized in like the P, which is more so sort of like a high level frame summary sort of thing. Um, you can iterate on this where like the Q might've been a little bit more operationalized, but like not that much more. And then you can do it again and find, you know, an another thing that you, that like is uh, a double crux for the Q. So yeah, when like you have a disagreement on P uh, and you find a Q that like has this relationship to the P uh, for the two people who are disagreeing. Like the Q is a double crux for P. Um, maybe Divya wants to give a more followable and less yeah. explanation. Yeah, yeah, I'll give an example. I, I think that's a great explanation. And so this is, I always go to like, I don't know. Um, I think the first time I ever tried to do double crux, I was talking to some guy and I was like, I think most people should have kids. And he was like, I think they shouldn't. And then it was like, I was like, well, okay, I think that because I think they'd feel more fulfilled if they did. And he was like, oh, interesting. I think they wouldn't feel more fulfilled. But, like, that's a crux for me. I'm like, yeah, I think that's a crux for me, too. And so it's like now we, now we can shift the argument to be like, would people feel, would most people feel fulfilled by having children instead of should people have kids? Which is, again, it's like a little more specific. It's a little more empirical. Not perfect. I don't think we came to agreement about that in the conversation, though. He did eventually have kids, so I don't know. Yeah, I guess another thing I want to say about it is that, like, once you find the double crux, it seems like the natural thing to do is like then go out and find out whether like Q is true or false. Uh, but that's like a bit ambitious. Like just finding like I think part of the frame of double crux is that like just finding the Q is like that's 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 a win condition already. Because uh, it like I don't know it just it makes it so that like our maps of the world are like related to each each other in such a way that like. we can almost think of them as like one map or something. Um, sorry, that's a bit vague, but like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think, I don't know. I think it's been long enough. I think I'm going to try to give some sort of an intro and then we can dive into the thing. I'll like, you know, start from some context that you already set. Sounds good. All right. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't, you know, I might try to direct things in that way. I'm not asking either of you guys to directly keep in mind anything about cruxes unless you think it's fun too. But I, I would like to say I, my, you know, the original context for this on Twitter, Ronnie, was that you were talking about wanting to do things like understand Quentin's views and summarize his views and then discuss them. And I do think it's, it's going to be that sort of conversation. Certainly that's my hope that it's less like I'm going to prove you wrong and more like, let's just figure out what we believe together and try to, you know, try to understand, map out the space better and stuff like that. Um, I think 
that you guys are probably going to be pretty good at doing this on your own and you won't need much moderation. That's my, but, you know, feel free to ask for it. Um, and I'll try to, I don't know, I'll try to say things if they seem helpful. I, I don't want to take any questions from anyone in the audience until maybe the end, though. Like, feel free to post them, them on Twitter or message them to me or something, and then I'll try to look at those. But I can't promise, I don't know, I'm not great at, like, reading things in real time while I'm doing one of these, but I'll try. Um, yeah, and then the topic, I think you guys will explain it better than I did. I did read, Quentin, your blog post about evolution not being a good analogy for the sharp left turn thing. I think that's that's not the exact title, but something like that. I liked it. Uh, Ronnie wanted to talk about it, and you were down. So I think that is the topic for today. Yeah. Cool. Um, I want to make two quick uh, protocol points. So a kind of moderation that I would appreciate from Divya. Um, maybe Quentin is very good at this, but I don't know. I know that I'm bad at it. Um, a thing that I tend to mess up in conversations is like, uh, there will be some like high level thing that we were disagreeing about, and then we'll like find some sub detail of it, and then go into disagreeing about that. And I often tend to forget like what was the thing that was one like layer up the stack that was like why we got into the detail. Um, and if you could help us keep track of that, or at least help me keep track of that, Divya, that would be very helpful to me. Uh, and one more thing I want to mention is that like I'm bad sometimes at knowing when like my turn to speak is or something so i will probably use the hand raising sim uh symbol to like signify like oh i have a point on that or like i, I would like to speak or something like that um and cool. i invite you to use the same thing if you'd like quentin uh you don't have to yeah those both sound good to me i i'm gonna try to keep track of the conversational stack and the dependencies and stuff and i will also pay attention to the hand raises so yeah, I don't know. Um, since we've been talking more casually, Quentin, do you wanna do you wanna lead us off by saying some things? Yeah, sure. So my basic view on these sorts of issues is that like people are very bad at forecasting AI developments off of inside view like considerations about how they think like AI is quote unquote supposed to work or um what seems like promising directions of research for them. And we kind of saw this when like the entire profession of statistical learning theorists almost completely failed at anticipating that deep learning would be like a thing. They had what they considered to be solid theoretical arguments for why deep learning, why stuff like deep learning shouldn't work. And it turns out those were completely wrong and deep learning did work. And so my general position here is that if you want to forecast like the plausible future uh, development trajectory of deep learning, you're much better off relying on like the empirical evidence of how AI progress has gone so far and like the scaling laws of resources invested versus um, capabilities returned and that uh, like inside view arguments about deep learning being super inefficient and there should be these sorts of sudden takeoff slash sharp left turn scenarios where uh, some mysterious phase transition happens and that causes and that like unleashes simultaneously a huge burst of like generality and progress and uh, 
other correlates of the human sharp left turn, I think those arguments are like pretty much all wrong. Um, and I think that I think that they like rest on very shaky theoretical foundations. And um, the one datum of empirical evidence that's used to support these sorts of uh, sharp left turn tests scenarios is what we might call like the human sharp left turn where human evolution happened very very slowly uh, when it was being run when the process behind uh, accumulating capabilities relevant information over time was purely genetic selection but then there was like culture and humans reached some threshold whereby we could crop send compounding amounts of information across generations. And then that is like a much faster process as compared to biological evolution. And so you got what looks like a sharp left turn. This was not due to any like mysterious phase transition, -y sort of thing, or like some inherent tendency of optimization processes to create something like an inner thing that's faster than the outer optimization process. It was just because like, within lifetime learning, it's such a fantastically more powerful optimization process as compared to cross-generational evolution. So that's my like, starting point. Thanks. I also, um, Quentin, if it's, Ronnie, I think you, I do want you to talk. Quentin, if it happens to be super easy for you to talk a little louder, I think that would make it a bit easier for me. I don't know if that's a shared thing. Yeah. Or uh, bring your microphone closer to your uh, mouse, maybe. Yeah, uh, is this better? Yeah, it's a bit better. Yeah. All right, cool. cool. Now, Ronnie. Um, yeah, so I guess what I would like to do, it's kind of a big bit, but what I'd like to do is like try to summarize like the argument or like the bit of cognition that like uh, you sort of summarized there at the beginning, which your post evolution provides no evidence for the sharp left turn. Uh, I think of this post as like criticizing a particular bit of cognition. I want to like try to like summarize that cognition or argument, then like summarize uh, your criticism of it. Um, and like at both steps, I want to like ask you for like disagreements with my summary or level of agreement with my summaries, something like that. Um, does that sound good to you, Quentin? Sure, go ahead. Cool. So yeah, I guess, um, so it sounded like, and I think also from the post, it kind of seems like you basically agree that there was a sharp left turn um, in humanity. Um, so like there's a broad background framework that like this is all working from, uh, which I think first comes from uh, a paper uh, called risks from inner optimization Risk, or risks, risks from, from learned, learned optimization. There you go. Thanks. Um, and the basic framework there is something like, um, so it, well, it, it applies to machine learning, but it could also apply to like other kinds of making artificial intelligence. The basic idea is that there's, um, two levels at which optimization happens. Um, or at which it can happen. There's one level, which is like uh, in machine learning, it's like generally speaking, stochastic gradient descent. 
um, where basically there's like some initial model. And when you initialize the model, it's just going to be like a bunch of random parameters. Um, and then you like try it on its tasks. And of course, when you initialize it, it's like really crappy. Um, and then you do this like magic thing uh, that we won't get into. It's not really magic. It's actually pretty easy to understand. Um, but it's called stochastic gradient descent. Do like some steps of this for um, a batch of tasks that the model did. Um, and this like incrementally improves the performance of the model on the tasks. Um, so like this process, the Cassic gradient descent is like itself an optimizer. Um, and in this background framework, they call it the adder optimizer. A thing that can happen is that the like model that you're optimizing this way can itself learn to do optimization. So for instance, if you were like training a model to play Go, um, it can, can and like I, I'll claim very likely will learn to do some kind of optimization, um, where it's like optimizing uh, states towards states of the board. It's like tending to steer the state of the Go board um, towards certain kinds of states. Um, like SGD is like tending to steer the model towards like certain kinds of models. Um, and I think this is basically what I mean by optimization. I don't want to give like a more technical definition of it. I just mean something by like steering towards certain states of a system. Um, cool. So that's like a background model in which like this conversation is happening. Um, and so the analogy that Quentin was talking about is something like um, you can think of evolution, like natural selection that happened on Earth uh, that in fact happened. Um, you can think of it as a kind of outer optimizer that's optimizing for a particular kind of goal. Uh, and you can also think of like the things that evolution acts on, uh, organisms in this case, as um, things that sometimes become optimizers themselves, right? So like evolution is steering the state of like organisms that exist on earth towards some particular part of like state space um, and then some of these organisms themselves implement algorithms that also uh, steer the states of other systems towards particular uh, kinds of states. So like, for instance, uh, you know, well, let's just go with the like most relevant example for the conversation, like humans learn to implement some sort of algorithm um, and humans that, that is optimizing. Um, and what I mean by that is that like humans uh, will like, you know, look at a situation and be like, okay, the state that I want is such and such state. Um, and here are some possible actions I could take. Let me find the action that best steers the world towards these kinds of states. Um, and so the analogy is supposed to be that like, you know, it's something like uh, stochastic gradient descent is to model as uh, natural selection is to organisms. Um, and in particular, the idea is that like, um, sometimes you get a mismatch between what the model is optimizing for in machine learning and like what you were hoping that the model was optimizing for. So like you might write uh, a loss function that like, I don't know what's what's a good example here. Um, 
uh, there's a classic example where it's like you write a loss function where like uh, also um, Ronnie yeah. I'm not it's fine if you want to keep going I just want to alert you that Quentin does have his hand up which I think uh, yeah. to... uh, Quentin go ahead yeah so um, I've read risks from learned optimization in a fair bit of detail and I just like to note that I don't agree with the frame it presents I think that it like primes people to do a sort of abusive notation or abuse of verbal descriptions and like use optimization as this way of brushing under the rug a lot of details that really quite matter a lot to the sort of thing that we're talking about. So like you described optimization in like this maximally general way of steering towards particular types of outcomes or like selecting among a larger space of possibilities. And the thing is that this sort of description applies to every possible way, every like non-random and even like a lot of random ways of making decisions. Um, and so it doesn't really tell you anything to say that a particular system is doing is doing like inner optimization under this description. So for example, random forests, um, like they do actually fall into this description of optimization because they are like, you put, give them some input and assuming the random forest has been trained to do whatever classification say, it will like select among a small state space of possible outputs in a way that like appears directed towards some sort of goal and uh, it, but it would be like quite odd, I think, to say the sorts of like inner search intuitions that I think you'll be ultimately wrapping around towards apply to say a single execution of a random forest or even like a lookup table, which would also be an example of optimization under this like maximally broad definition. Yeah, and that's without like getting into the fact that you can so like for any sort of system. Okay, right. okay. sorry, Quentin. R Ronnie also yeah. has his hand up. I think I, I personally have an aesthetic of like more rapid back and forth. I don't know if that works for you guys, but I think I'd like to try it and see how it goes. Cool. Uh, I just want to make a quick like, uh, yeah, I'm like with you that like uh, a maximally broad definition of optimization is like not actually going to work or something. Like uh, if we dig into it, like, uh, yes, like, yeah. Um, but I'm kind of like hoping that you're willing to spot me that like there's some, um, would you be willing to spot me if I was like, the thing that we're interested in is something like universal optimization where it's like, uh, I don't know, man, what do I mean by that? I mean, something like, um, it's an optimizer and also like has like, some sort of like ability to pretty much like imagine all computable hypotheses or something like that. No, uh, no, I would not be willing to spot you that. Like, I think that's a terrible thing to spot in any sort of discussion about like intelligence at all. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like, I think one of the distinct things about humans is that like they're kind of universal and that like, sure, I have 
uh, working memory constraints. I have all sorts of constraints, but like the constraints on what I can imagine are not, are like constraints on like size and time or something. They're not constraints on, uh, I don't know. They're not constraints on like the kind of hypothesis that I can imagine. W would you agree with that? No. Cool. Well, I don't know. I guess I'm like, I mean, if you give me enough time, I can run a Turing machine for you. Uh, and I'm like, you give me a computable hypothesis eventually. If you give me enough time and enough space or whatever, I'll be able to tell you what it predicts this, and like give you this is not matter. like this is not like an important part of your intelligence. The fact that you can operate as a Turing machine, like actual computers are much better at this, but they're not they're not intelligent in the way that like an AGI is supposed to be intelligent and dangerous. Um, I mean, currently existing computers, of course, will have AGIs on computers eventually. But my point is, like, yeah, the stuff we want to know about in terms of the learning processes of AGIs and of humans that makes us general is not deriving from the fact that they're Turing machines. In a lot of ways, like the entire point of like designing a good architecture and good training process and good data is to rule out like bad hypotheses. Um, a lot of the internal um, models are probably like... Yeah. So I want to I want to try to keep us on track here. So I think this is an interesting discussion. It also seems, Quentin, from how you're talking, like you are sometimes using the word general. So maybe you think that there is something about generality. So I don't know if what if the current discussion... I just want to check. Like if you guys want to keep having it because you're sure that it's an important crux for the overall discussion, then cool. But I wasn't sure. So I'm checking especially since there does seem to be agreement that there is something that you would both use the word more general to describe. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I, uh, Quentin, if you want to like, let me know what you mean by optimization and what you mean by general, uh, I'm like probably down to just use whatever you're talking about. Yeah. So I think this is not, I think that like eventually the discussion will wind up in a place similar to this, but it's maybe better to go back to um, when Ronnie was like summarizing the views in question. Because when I originally noted that I didn't like agree with the risk from the learned optimization objective frame, I was more intending this to be like a relatively small note. Keep in mind that this is one of the areas where our frames are like diverging as opposed to like getting into the details. Cool. And in terms, I mean, and in terms of like yeah. you using my definitions of general and optimization, um, I like don't super think that would be too helpful because the way I think is that like word optimization is not that useful of a word um, because it is like too general. And if you force me to give a definition, I basically give you the definition you gave of like selecting from things. But then I'd also say like, okay, but the details of the things you're selecting from and how you're doing the selection really matter quite a lot. And um, like making very general arguments about optimization processes 
as a the universal thing is not going to get you that far, I think. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I do kind of feel like, I don't know, it might end up being um, that we like have to go back to like talking about like what is it that we really mean by optimization and what is it that we really mean by general. I wouldn't be surprised if like a bunch of the cruxes are hidden in there or something. Um, but uh, I'm happy to like keep summarizing. Um, for what it's worth, I'm like pretty on board with I don't know, uh, Alex Turner had this post that was like, here are the ways that the uh, risk from learned optimization uh, paper is like a kind of bad frame. And I don't know, the basic idea in that post was something like uh, it decomposes a hard problem into two like impossible problems. And I was like, yep, that seems pretty legit. Another like basic idea in it was like, look, man, uh, if you're making a marble statue, you don't need like the chisel, the chisel that you are using to be shaped like the marble statue that you want to eventually make. Um, and this is supposed to be analogous to like, you know, the loss function doesn't need to be shaped like the values that you want to eventually get into the model. And I'm also pretty on board with that. Like these seem like definitely true points and definitely problems with uh, the frame in risk from learn optimization. But I'm still like, I don't know. I want to explain what inner and outer optimizers are for people because that does seem like important parts of important concepts or something for like the discussion. Um, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Cool. Uh, well, I feel like we basically did. Um, uh, so, okay. So I don't know the the bit of cognition that like I th uh, that I think Quentin was criticizing goes something like. Look, we have an example of an outer optimizer uh, acting on things that eventually became optimizers. The example is evolution acting on organisms on Earth. Um, and what ended up happening is eventually we ended up with humans, which seemed to learn some sort of like neat trick. Um, and this neat trick uh, made it so that um, the First of all, the, the values of humans diverged pretty far from uh, what evolution was op optimizing for, um, at least according to this bit of cognition. Uh, according to this bit of cognition, evolution was optimizing for uh, internal genetic fitness. I'm uh, sorry, uh, inclusive uh, genetic, fitness, genetic fitness. Um, and then the claim is humans are definitely not now optimizing for inclusive genetic fitness, even though in the ancestral environment, like the actions they took seem to like pretty much make sense with inclusive genetic fitness. Like what their actual values were was not, didn't mention genes at all, right? Like ancestral humans did not have the concept of genes. Um, and like furthermore, like if you offered a human today, like a choice between, you know, make a million genetic clones of yourself or like have only 10 children and you get $10 million. Um, I claim many, many, many people, if not almost all people, will um, pick the second option. Um, and so this is like supposed to be, I mean, I, I, I think of this as like pretty strong evidence that humans are like, uh, actually, I just think it's obvious that humans like do not in fact just value inclusive genetic fitness. Uh, and I think Quentin, you agree with this? Yeah. 
So I have like a very different interpretation of what this means for deep learning than I think you do. Cool. Um, and so uh, the cognition to this argument kind of continues and it's like, look, in general, it's going it, to, once you get something that's like, first of all, you're not going to get models that like value the loss function that they ended up with, right? Um, you're not going to get models that like end up basically like, you know, if you trained a model to, for instance, perfectly predict like pieces of text, um, like that's the loss function you're training it on. You don't end, if you train the model to the point where like it becomes an optimizer and has like internal motivations, um, the motivations that you get in the model are not going to be exactly predict the next piece of text as well as possible. They're going to be something that like performs well uh, at like that level of capability on this task. But like as like the distribution of tasks that it's deployed on changes or like as it gets smarter, um, like the divergence between like good performance on the loss function and good performance on the motivations that the model actually ended up with uh, is going to get like more and more noticeable. And this is supposed to be analogous with like how for humans, like we had really good performance on the task of like uh, internal genetic fitness, uh, sorry, inclusive genetic fitness in the ancestral environment um, for like our level of intelligence at the time. But like as our environment shifted and as like we got better options uh, with technology and all sorts of stuff, we started to do more and more stuff that like made it clear that our motivations actually diverge pretty uh heavily from inclusive genetic fitness. Um, and like, also it's easy to predict that like, as we get better options, um, it will become more so the case that we like, it will become more obvious. Our, our motivations will diverge more from like inclusive genetic fitness. Um, and so the idea is like, there's an analogy between this and like stochastic gradient descent in models. Um, and so we should like expect the same sort of thing in machine learning. Although I'm like, man, this is n equals one or something. Uh, and like, actually what's driving my belief in this is like other underlying assumptions that are like a bit vaguer or something. And it's not really the n equal one argument. Um, but drawing those out seems hard. Uh, and I think that's going to be my summary of the thing I thought Quentin was criticizing. Yeah. Do you, do you want um, that? Yeah. So, like, I agree this is a correct, summary of like things people have said about evolution and deep learning. That's not exactly what I was criticizing in that post. Um, cool. So a lot of alignment arguments about, okay, so what we want to know in alignment is basically like, how do models generalize from their training behavior? So like if we train them to do X, on their training distribution. And then we either like deploy them from training or like lose the ability to constrain them during training or whatever. Like what do they do then? Do they continue to do stuff similar to X or do they do like Y, which is totally and completely different from X? And so a lot of arguments from evolution will go something like, well, humans were trained to do X in the ancestral environment and humans in the modern environment do Y instead. And so this is like an extreme example of train test divergences. 
I should update us towards thinking that like deep learning models will exhibit extreme divergences between train and test behavior. And I think this is an extremely wrong way to think about the relationship between evolution and uh, the training of deep learning. Like they're both optimization procedures, but like I mentioned previously, the details of like what's being optimized over and how that optimization is happening really do matter quite a lot. Um, Quentin, quick question. So would you be up for highlighting how you were like, Ronnie, that's a good summary of what some people say, but it's not quite the view I'm criticizing. And then you said the thing. I was trying to listen for like, what is the difference between the view you put forward and the one that Ronnie said you were criticizing? Um, oh. But I didn't quite get it. Would, would you mind highlighting that? Or Ronnie, if you know, did yeah. somebody tell me? Yeah, I can explain it. Um, so like, uh, one other thing that's different from like the divergence between training and testing behavior that people use evolutionary analogies to argue about is basically like takeoff speed questions. So, um, okay. like evolution, like humans gained biological capabilities very slowly, uh, during evolution. And then like there was this sudden takeoff or this sharp left turn as Nate calls it where uh, now we're developing much more quickly than the quote-unquote outer optimization process would have allowed. And so this is like evidence of either fast takeoff or the more specific hypothesis of the sharp left turn in the context of deep learning systems. And I was arguing against that, making that okay, so is it evolution as well. Yeah, is it fair to say that Ronnie's thing was more about the left turn and you were like, okay, but you forgot the sharp part? Yeah, or... Yeah, so, like, I've argued against both of them. Also, the fast part, I think, is important to Quinton. Yeah, okay, I, I wasn't, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so, also, um, I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm flexible to whatever you guys both agree is good. I think the original agenda had been, first, Ronnie was going to summarize the view you were criticizing, and then he was going to try to summarize your view. I, I still like that, but if, Quinton, you want to say some more things before Ronnie does that, you know, I'm open to that too. Yeah, I think, Ronnie, if you want to summarize my view, we can just go on with the note that I strongly object to the view you've summarized. Great. Sounds good. Yeah. So I thought of Quentin's post as like criticizing the argument that I was summarizing. Um, and I think I want to highlight like real quick what Quentin, so Quentin's like, I think the way I was summarizing it was something like, you'll get a big divergence between the motivations that you see the inner optimizer uh, optimizing for and that you thought the outer optimizer was optimizing the inner optimizer to optimize. Um, you'll see a bigger divergence in this as like the inner optimizer gets smarter and like as uh, you like change the distribution of tasks. And Quinton's like, first of all, more generally, we just want to know like, how do these things generalize? Um, like if they do X in training, will they do Y when deployed or will they still do X or like how much, how, how different is the behavior going to be from like what you would have expected if you just looked at the training? Um, and then like also importantly, it's like, should we expect to like get fast takeoffs uh, or like sharp changes um, in what the motivation is or like, so I was just talking about uh, you'll see them diverge um, as you make the inner optimizer smarter 
and I, and Quentin's like, yeah, but like, also importantly, like, will it be fast? And will the inner optimizer get fast, get smart, uh, very quickly? Um, which seems legit to me. That does seem like what the post was criticizing or something. Um, so Quentin, this... that's, that's right. Just do like a quick checks on there. Um, it's like sort of. Um, there are some subtleties you're not fucking like you've uh, grokked yet, but we can get into that later. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to try quickly summarizing your criticism, and then uh, if Divya, you can like keep a note of that. Uh, subtleties and the difference between my summary and Quentin's summary of like the initial view, uh, and we can come back to that. Um, cool. So here is my summary of Quentin's criticism. Um, Quentin is like, yep, this is a kind of example, but like, uh, there are specific mechanisms that like we understand in evolution, or like in the case of evolution acting on humans. Um, the specific me mechanism is that, like, so evolution is, like, a pretty damn slow optimization process. Um, it's, like, pretty inefficient. Uh, and at one point, humans developed this thing where they had, like, cultural accumulation of knowledge or something like that. They developed culture. Um, and, like, they could do this thing where every generation of humans could, like, compress a whole bunch of information and then like feed it forward to the next generation of humans. Uh, and then this like process that's like also an optimization process in the sense that like, so cultural, cultural accumulation is like also an optimization process in this context in that like it's acting on what minds get made, what human minds get instantiated. Uh, in the same way that evolution is acting on like what minds get made, what human minds get instantiated. Um, the important thing is, from Quinton's point of view, I think, is that like cultural accumu uh, accumulation of knowledge is uh, much more efficient, much faster. Like there's, it it acts very quickly on what minds get instantiated, um, and like. It's kind of obvious that you would get a sharp left turn in this case. Like, if you were training a, a model and you were training it using stochastic gradient descent, and then also, like, at some point, you know, towards, like, the last 1% of the gradient steps that you're going to do, you let the model also very efficiently, like, give information to, like, the model after your next gradient descent step. Like, you would expect that this is going to cause a sharp left turn um, or you would expect that this is going to cause like something that kind of rhymes with a sharp left turn at least because there's just like this separate optimization process that's acting on the model uh, and it's like much faster than the stochastic gradient descent so like of course you get like you know you, you, you get something like a, a big like a, a divergence or something um, Quinton's gonna I don't know Quinton might disagree with like the last thing I said, but I, yeah, I don't know. Couldn't you disagree with the last thing I said? Yeah. Um, cool. So, <laughs> like, the issue here is that evolution is actually a bi-level optimization process. Even oh. before cultural development, there are, like, two levels 
of optimization happening simultaneously. One is the biological evolution, which is like yeah. selecting over a, doing one round of selection over alleles per generation. And the second, like lower level optimization process is within lifetime learning. And what I mean by that is um, the combination of like self-supervised sensory prediction plus reinforcement learning that I see. an organism's brain's brain performs within its lifetime. I and see. Like this, of course, it's like a continual learning process with no discrete steps happening in it. But let's like conservatively assume brains do two updates per second. Um, and then let's also conservatively assume that like a generation is 20 years. And just because of these like two facts, um, the within lifetime neurological level optimization process is doing approximately 1.2 billion steps per step of the outer optimization process. And yeah. so it's not like culture is the optimizer, which is so much faster than evolution. It's actually like your brain and all the brains of ancestral humans who were like contributing to culture. And so the reason that culture ends up advancing so much more faster than biology is because it's like receiving a billion times the optimization fuel as biology. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, quick, quick, quick question, Quentin. So like the, the culture, the, the, the accumulation through culture is like an important step here, right? It's not just like, it doesn't apply to dogs. Yeah, so the issue with like cool. dogs and non-human animals and our pre-sharp left turn evolutionary ancestors is that while they could cross past some like small fraction of their within lifetime learning to their generate to their descendants, this channel of information accumulation over time was at saturation. So if you like imagine a plot of amounts of biological information accumulated over time versus like amount of total information accumulated over time, then there's going to be roughly a fixed advantage of total information over biological information. Because while lifetime learning might be much faster, it doesn't like make progress over generations in the way that culture does right. with humans. But once the right. like channels for within between generational information passing becomes wider than the amount of information that's flowed into it, then the total information accumulated over time can suddenly have like a much higher slope as compared to the biological information accumulated over time. Yep. And that's the sharp left yep. turn of humans. Cool. Yeah. And so cool. you mentioned like this idea of um, trying to do a similar sort of thing in a neural networks training process. And you kind of seem yep. like a little unsure. Like what would it mean for the model at SGD step I to pass a billion times more information than an SGD step could pass, could instill into it, into itself at step I plus one? Yeah. yeah. And the reason you were confused, at least I think the reason you were confused, is because this just doesn't work. Like, the, the yeah. core problem with this sort of analogy is that evolution is not acting at the level that SGD does over a model's internal. Rather, the thing in biology that's most equivalent to SGD over a model is the within lifetime learning optimization process yeah. happening at the neuron level. Evolution yep. is more like 
neural architecture search. If you're familiar with that term yep. in like deep learning. Uh, I think I can figure out what it means from the parts of it, but... Uh, also, probably not all our listeners can, yeah. even if Ronnie can, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, one thing that alignment researchers should be very aware of is that capabilities researchers are, like, very clever people, and they also saw human evolutionary history and got various good ideas or things they thought were good ideas from that, and they've done stuff like try to reproduce evolution in silico. They've done stuff, and they've like even tried cleverer things than that. They've tried doing reinforcement learning over like a neural network training process. So they've done stuff like take a hundred different neural networks or however many neural networks and like train them all in slightly different ways and judge how well each of them did in training and then do some sort of evolutionary optimizer over the very architecture and training code of those neural networks, uh, or even like a faster optimizer, outer optimizer, like reinforcement learning over the training process of different neural networks, and done this for like multiple generations in order to find, in order to like search for efficient learning processes and efficient training code and efficient uh, architectures and designs. Um, this is like actually a fairly common technique. Uh, However, um, it like doesn't work. Uh, it turns out that uh, just making the neural networks bigger is usually better than trying to do all this like multi-generational cleverness in designing architectures and learning processes. And it's not like completely useless. You can get some small improvements at a given scale if you do a bunch of neural architecture search and stuff like that. Um, but like the key thing that sets GPT or that's been driving process has been to a great degree, like scaling stuff up larger and larger. And so one of the points I made in my post about the sharp left turn, not uh, about human evolution, not being evidence for a sharp left turn is that like what evolution was doing in ML speak was basically like training a million tiny models all the way to human level intelligence or human level intelligence in the ancestral environment. And then deleting all of those and doing like a single step of neural architecture search over those training processes, which if you look at like everything we've learned about how to optimally get capabilities out of a given level of compute is just a fantastically dumb idea. Um, and in particular, it's a fantastically dumb idea that leaves like a huge amount of computational resources on the table, which are available for any uh, self-improving process that can make more efficient use of them. As I think the, um, and I think the human sharp left turn was an example of that, where the ability to like pass on much more information between generations let us make use of the fact that like we do all of these fantastically fast uh, within lifetime learning updates within our lifetimes and distill much more of that capabilities related information for the next generation than would be possible with genetic evolution. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Ronnie, do you want to try, try again to summarize Quentin's view with all that in mind? Yeah. I mean, I feel like my summary wasn't that bad. I'm like, 
um, well, I guess here's one thing that was not in my summary that I thought was cool is that like Quinton is saying that there's in fact some ML research, which uh, is a better analogy to evolution. Um, another thing I didn't really realize, which makes sense in retrospect, is like, yeah, so, yeah, so th the main big thing that I think I was missing was that, like, Quentin's like, look, uh, organisms, in fact, do, do something a lot like, at least, reinforcement learning over the course of their lifetimes, um, and a bunch of learning happens there, uh, and what evolution's really doing is, like, a kind of optimization on like reinforcement although i guess it did find the reinforcement learning or something um also uh but like what it's doing is basically like you're you know you're instantiating a bunch of reinforcement learners and then uh like deleting all of the information that you got like while they were actually running and doing learning uh and then like just searching over like other architectures um so okay yeah. wait, quentin um can you can you make it fast if you can no, no, it's fine. Go for it, Quentin. Um, I completely forgot what I was going to say. Uh, okay. Uh, was it something about, like, I, I remember you raising your hand when Ronnie was like, well, evolution found reinforcement learning? Oh, yes, yes. I was going to remark on, like, how eerily weird it is that um, human AI development has, like, retrod such a similar path as evolution walked. Like we do, most of language modeling training is like self-supervised sensory prediction where the sensory environment in question is of course like just natural language text. And then that's like 99% where models get like 99% of their cognition, of their learned cognition. And then they get like 1% of RL on top of that learned cognition in order to steer the pre-trained models in useful directions. And like, actually very, very recently, there's been another development in the practice of training models where uh, like Anthropic discovered that you could do RL, essentially RL, throughout the entire quote unquote lifetime of the pre-training process. So instead of doing just pre-training at the start on language and then R a bit of RL at the end, you can do like mixture of pre-training and RL. And this is giving them better results. But like the interesting thing in my mind is that this is another step towards convergence between the sorts of training processes we discovered in AI research and what evolution constructed for um, basically everything with a nervous system that learns at all uh, in biology. Yeah, so interesting that uh, different search processes over learning processes would converge to such similar learning processes. That is eerie. Um, yeah. Uh, I am going to go back to trying to summarize, like trying to say what I thought you added that was not in my summary. Um, so Quinton's like, first of all, evolution's already uh, like two steps of like, you know, outermost optimizer and then like an, another optimizer uh, and then the inner optimizer. Uh, Quentin's like, look, animals already within lifetime 
optimize their minds uh, through something a lot like reinforcement learning. Um, and basically what evolution is doing is it's like uh, initializing some architectures and then letting them do some reinforcement learning. And then like at each generational step, it deletes all of the learning that was done within the lifetimes um, and you, and then like keeps doing search over like architectural space. Um, and Quinton points out that this is like a really dumb plan. Um, and if you were trying to do ML this way, it would not work very well. Um, in fact, it like turns out that, you know, ML researchers have tried things like this, um, where they like search over architectures and also search over learning rules. Um, and while they give you some better results, uh, like it looks like the best way to actually do things is just like pick a learning rule and put all of your compute into like making the model big and learning instead of uh, wasting compute looking for learning rules and architectures. Quentin? Yeah, so two like refinements on that point. Um, so evolution doesn't like cleanly just search over architectures. It's kind of weird. It like does many things simultaneously. And one of the things it does is it tunes the reward function. So like we have a bunch of like mostly evolutionarily hardwired classifiers basically in our neurology that assign rewards to certain types of experiences such as negative reward for pain, positive reward for like for consumption of assuming we're hungry and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and also like the learning rule, presumably. Yeah. Um, I suspect that the actual update rule that neurons use is relatively conserved across generations. Um, and that most like high level behavior we care about comes from tuning of the reward circuitry. But I'm not sure about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then that might be true now, but like certainly at some point, there were like some choices to make about what learning rule to use or something. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing those choices are like not actually super relevant. Uh, huh. Yeah. So, okay, what was my other point? Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. You should use you should use Divya as uh, working memory. Yeah, it's... totally. I though I, I with that prompt, I don't yet know it. What was your other point? Yeah, what did you say in the last part of your summary? Of my view, uh, I was like, uh, people in ML have tried this. Oh, uh, have tried to like, yeah. Oh yes, yes. Um, so like, what people in ML do, which appears to be the best thing we currently know how to do, and what appears to be what OpenAI did in GPT-4, is they will do their tuning of the architectural and learning process details at like a smaller model scale. So rather than try to train a million GPT-4s per generation and iterate over like that entire process of training up a full GPT-4 and then tuning your learning process a bit, They've like figured out the relationship between how you train a very small model versus what that means for how you should train a very large model. And then they tune their learning process on the small version of the large model and then do like one run. Once they figured out that stuff, they do one run at the largest scale they can possibly manage. And so this is like much more efficient 
it lets you do yeah. some degree of like architectural tuning, which could involve like combinations of say neural architecture search or like hand engineering or like iterative research and design stuff with human effort or whatever at the small scale and then do the one run at the very large scale. And the interesting thing about this is it doesn't leave um, money on the table. It doesn't like leave a massive resource overhang that can be exploited because you're already spending, I don't know, 80% or whatever. I don't know the details of what I did, but you're spending like a lot of your compute, a very significant fraction of your total compute on the one run of your biggest model. Yeah. And so you can't like yeah. perfectly reuse all your compute and suddenly you're doing five to nine orders of magnitude more. Yeah. Yeah, that does seem like a cool thing to do. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of at the point now, this is uh, meta, where I'm like, okay, I think I understand Quentin's view. And I kind of want to try fighting with it or something. Um, Are you up for summarizing it one more time? Yeah. Um, so Quentin's like, Yep, here's a problem with the uh, evolution analogy for the sharp left turn. Um, in fact, there are like specific mechanistic things in evolution, which like kind of obviously would have led to a sharp left turn. Uh, the specific mechanistic things are like, uh, it's, sorry, not just in evolution, in the case of like evolution for humans. Um, the specific mechanistic things are like, yep, you had this like two-step um, outer optimizer setup. Uh, and, like, you were throwing away a bunch of information, and then, like, culture kicks on uh, for humans, and then, like, you stop throwing away all that information, and you get, like, billions of times more information being passed to, like, the next generation, um, and you're, like, uh, like, yeah, there's just, like, now this other optimization process acting on the organisms, and, like, if you, like, look at the, like, accumulation of information or whatever... Um, if you, like, imagine that this is a graph, you will see, like, a very sudden and sharp uh, change in the slope of this chart. Um, and that is, and that's coming from, like, cultural transmission getting good. Uh, does, uh, Quentin, do you, do you want to say some more, some words about whether you feel happy about this summary? Yeah, that's pretty much my position in regards to what evolution means for takeoff speeds. And then there's basically a symmetric argument that you can make about what evolution means for like inner misalignment risk, where there's some other slightly different mechanistic reason having to do with evolution being a bi-level optimization process, which means that you can easily predict that like humans wouldn't have internalized evolutionary genetic fitness. Oh, this actually is seems important to me and like we should spend some time on it. Uh, like specifically on this as opposed to like, yeah. So I, I'm just kind of like predicting here, but I'm like, you're, you're, you're saying something like, uh, look, evolution is like making little reinforcement learners um, and is like acting by changing the reward functions for like part of what it's acting on is, so it's acting on the architectures of the reinforcement learners and it's also acting on the reward functions of the uh, reinforcement learners. And somehow knowing these facts, 
I should predict that we're going to get divergence between uh, what evolution wants and what the reinforcement learners want, but I don't see how that's obvious yet. Yeah, sure. Um, so the first thing to note is that, or do you remember back in the earlier conversation when I like summarized what sort of argument people tended to make about evolution in regards to misgeneralization of AI training? Um, no, not really, to be honest. Yeah, so the argument people will tend to make is to say, like, evolution trained humans in the ancestral environment to do X, and then in the modern environment, humans, like, quote-unquote, misgeneralized to do Y instead. And so the first part of my argument is that this is not actually an appropriate analogy for what happened in the context of evolution. What happened in the context of evolution is, like, once you analogize between humans and ML models at the level of within lifetime learning, as opposed to at the level of like evolution over all of humanity, then the analogy becomes like in the ancestral environment, humans were trained to do X and also like, and there was never like some discrete testing point. They just were trained to do X in the ancestral environment and did X in the ancestral environment. And then in the modern environment, humans were trained to do Y in the modern environment and they did Y in the modern environment. So it's not an example of like, we trained Ooh. a model to do X in some training environment, and then in the testing environment, it suddenly started doing Y instead. It's an example of like, we trained a model to do X in one environment, and then we trained it to do Y, sorry, and then we trained a completely different model of the same architecture in a different environment to do Y, and now these two models are different from each other in their behavior. So, just uh, I'm not for what it's worth. Yeah, like, man, in like evolution found this reinforcement learner and like set up its reward function and uh, set up its architecture, and evolution was like, yeah, this guy of rules. He got so much IGF. He's awesome in this environment. Uh, and then we like change the environment a bunch, and like we still have the same reward functions basically. And we still have the same uh, architectures, basically. Uh, and now it's doing very different stuff. Yeah, and that's what you'd expect from like an ML model in that context. So to give a concrete example of the sort of thing I'm talking about here, like one part of that reward function was to reward humans for like consuming gazelle meat or like berries or whatever in the ancestral environment. Right? And so mechanistically, what happened in the ancestral environment is that like people who got who consumed certain types of sugars or whatever were more reproductively fit. And so people who by chance happened to have a reward circuit that rewarded them for consuming sugars had a reproductive advantage. And so over time, humans had a part of their reward circuitry which like distributed reward upon the consumption of sugars. And then, when you're in the modern environment, you have like a different distribution of training data. The reward function remains the same, but the reward function is not actually the distribution of rewards that you encounter. So in the modern environment, like usually people don't hunt down gazelles. Um, in the modern environment, there's like ice cream and the sort, and this like activates the reward circuitry that was produced originally in the ancestral environment and like 
the ancestral humans were trained to hunt gazelles and they did hunt gazelles. And in the modern environment, humans are trained to eat ice cream and they did eat ice cream. So the inference you make from this evolutionary analogy is the inference that like matters for the training process of RL agents is that RL agents will tend to do the sort of stuff that they're rewarded for doing. So it's like yeah. no longer yeah. an example of trained test misgeneralization, it's like normal generalization. Sort of. Although it's like it's still an example of like sorry, b before I forget this, like maybe a post that would be cool for you to write. Because I'm like, here's something I definitely currently believe. I'm like, I currently believe Quinton has like a cool way to repartition um, an analogy between evolution and machine learning. Um, and I'm like, man, this seems like a pretty cool partition or like a, a pretty cool way to repartition the analogy. Uh, and Quinton's post is about like, how this other way of learning stuff from an analogy between these two was like crappy because the analogy wasn't as good as, as Quentin's analogy. And I'm like, yeah, true. But can we learn some other stuff using your repartitioning of the analogy? Maybe you should write a post. that's like, here's what you can learn about machine learning by analogy through evolution. Yeah. The issue is that I think you basically don't learn anything. Um, like I said, uh, the, what you learned in this context of like uh, humans have reward circuitry for sugar and in one distribution of data it caused X behavior and in a different distribution of data it caused Y. It's like the standard understanding of what rewards do in reinforcement learning. It like makes the agent more likely to do the thing that led to the reward. I, I wanna, I, I, so yeah, uh, I wanted to get that meta point out before I uh, forgot it, but like, uh, I think I'm like, still it depends like how you're describing stuff right like you might have been i guess it depends like the level of description at which you're describing like what was being rewarded or like what the goal was or something like this it's like in the ancestral environment humans were super into berries right and then you like change the distribution and like now they're like buying chocolate cakes and making chocolate cakes and all sorts of stuff and like you know, sure, if you, if you describe it at the level of humans are rewarded to consume sugars or to consume fats, it's like, yep, this is obvious, this is what you would have expected. Okay. But if you describe it at the level okay, humans um, are consuming berries, then like, uh, yeah, I don't, does, does that make sense? Yeah, so I don't think that's how you should think about reinforcement learning. Uh, it yeah, doesn't really... I, I, not how you should think about reinforcement learning, but I am like, it would have been a mistake. So yeah, it's definitely a mistake to say that like, um, the goals of the humans are to eat berries. It's also a mistake to say that like the humans are being uh, reinforcement learned into liking berries. Um, but I think that's like, sort of an accident or something. Like it could have been that the reinforcement learning was like getting us to like be into berries, but it picked sugar. Uh, instead of getting us to be into berries. Like, in this alternate universe, like, we would have been eating, like, small purple spheres that are, like, really bright and really shiny uh, instead of, like, eating things that have lots of sugar. Yeah, and I think that's because, like, in the ancestral environment, visual cues were less uh, informative or stable than, like, chemical cues about 
consumption, and so the reward for circuitry was more uh, easily pinged by chemical cues than visual cues. And so we ended up with reward circuitry that was about like, do the chemosensors in your mouth detect sugar, as opposed to a reward circuitry that was like, I will now hard code a shininess, roundness detector and reward you for encountering things that are shiny, round, and blue. Okay. This seems interesting to me, but I think this particular thing seems like a little in the weeds. I'm like, okay, if we're going to focus on evolution with the chemical sensors versus the visual, can we like make sure to connect it up to things that we care about? Yeah. So the, the, the reason I brought it up, the reason I was like uh, drawing the connection is I'm like, so you said a thing before Quentin, which was like, that's not the right way to think about reinforcement learners. And I'm with you, but I'm like, the right way to think about my mind separately from so like i don't know uh blah, 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 blah. i i want to be careful about what i say here because it might like imply things i don't actually mean or something but like um or my suggestings i don't actually mean uh but like i don't know i'm not my reinforcement learner or something like my reinforcement learner wants me to like consume a bunch of sugar and i'm like yeah but uh i don't want to get that much sugar because I'll get fat and die or something. Um, or sorry, uh, or like, I don't know, it could be bad for me. Um, and like, I don't know, my reinforcement learner wants me to like have sex with a bunch of uh, people uh, in like easy, low stakes contexts. But I'm like, yeah, that seems like, uh, you know, I, yes, that is appealing. But also it like seems better to me to like get married and be monogamous or something. Um, and like, I don't know, like there, there's still, there, there's an important difference between like what my motivations are uh, and like this reinforcement learning process within my life that like shaped my motivations. And like, I don't know, I, I, I'm still autonomous separately from the reinforcement learning or something. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay. Cool. Okay. Is, is it okay if I try to summarize what I think has happened so far? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to do a good job, but I'm going to try. So, Ronnie, I really, I don't know, it was helpful for me when you said the thing about Quentin sort of repartitioning the analogy or something like that. Like, I think, I think where we're, where I think we're at or something is it's been common, you know, going back a long time for people talking about AI to use an evolution analogy in a particular way where like evolution is analogized to the AI and, um, and then the human, I don't know, like human values are analogized to the AI's values, right? And I think, Quentin, you're like, no, this is, this is mis misleading both because, both because there are a bunch of disanalogies between the way the AI is learning and the way, the way AI is sort of accumulating capacity and the way evolution is accumulating capacity. Um, and... Because there's actually a tighter analogy between um, evolution and, or at Human least between the organisms that. Mind. Or, uh, no, I, that, well, wait, is that right? I was no, it's evolution. Uh, it, in Ronnie's uh, interpretation of Quentin's repartitioning of the analogy, it's like evolution goes with like. Uh, meta-parameter search or like architecture yeah, search. That's right. yeah. yeah, so evolution is more analogized to parameter search and um, within lifetime... Meta-parameter search. 
is the more the correct analogy for the way the AIs are accumulating capacity. Is that? Yeah, I think. Wait, Quentin, uh, does that, I, I, does that I say seem yes. somewhat crazy? Or does that seem wrong? Yeah, that's, that's not the right pretty much what I'm arguing. And also, I like wrote an entire post making that point. Um, totally. Yes, I, I have gotten it better from this discussion than I did from reading the post, uh, though I did read it. So mm -hmm. apologies, I did not already understand all of that. Uh, yeah, I, I also, uh, I mean, I, I read the post a few times, um, and I definitely understand it much better now, which is probably unsurprising. Um, yeah, uh, I, 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 so, okay. I think, Quentin, maybe the reason you're like, yeah, but like you can't learn shit from evolution uh, is because you're like, the real thing that we can learn from is the, uh, the inner optimization problem, like between like the reinforcement learning of like how my neurons update from sensory shit and like the actual mind that is Ronnie or whatever. Um, yeah, I think and, like, that's, a better, that, that's the thing. I think that's a better analogy, although I wouldn't call it like an inner alignment problem so much as like a relationship because like if you have a particular mechanism in mind that you think is responsible for the formation of human values, why would you deliberately aim to prevent that mechanism from arising in your AIs? So, like, I think AI should have approximately the same relationship with the reward functions as we humans do with our reward functions. Interesting. Hmm. So, like, the, the inner alignment problem that you have is, like, why you don't want to wirehead. Uh, if you were perfectly aligned to, like, taking the action in every possible circumstance, that would maximize yeah. your reward function activation, like that would be quite bad. Yeah, that seems right. Uh, agreed. Um, yeah, it would be bad from my point of view. Um, yeah, and I guess there's like pretty much no hope of writing, writing a reward function that's like my motivations and then like, uh, I don't know. So like, yeah, the, the first part of the problem is like write a reward function that like somehow actually captures my motivations. The second part of the problem is get the model to actually optimize that reward function. And it's like, yep, no fucking way on either of those. Like the first one you're not going to do. Uh, and the second one's probably not going to happen. Um, so yeah, that seems legit. Um, yeah, I like it. But then I'm like, yeah, I, I'm still like, I mean, this doesn't help super much because like I still have the problem that like, when I like the function from reward function to motivations that actually get instantiated is like still unclear. Uh, I'm like, if we knew that function, then sick, maybe we could solve the problem. Uh, but I don't know it. Uh, but maybe you're just like, that's the function we should try to figure out. In which case, like, I don't know, that seems pretty legit. Yeah, I think we should try and figure out that function. I also think that like fucking around and finding out would probably work like sort of AI open AI's current approach of just like empirically encounter that function by training a bunch of AIs and then just doing a bunch of like scalable supervision and ordinary sorts of engineering work would probably end up working. Oh man. 
I think I still disagree with that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe Ronnie, I... um, so far we've been, I think we, we've arrived at like a pretty good summary of Quentin's post, finally, after over an hour. Um, Ronnie, do you want to take a minute to sort of lay out what your position is, since we haven't really gotten to hear that yet? Sure. I mean, I don't know. My position's boring. My position's like, uh, we're going to make some really smart stuff. And we don't have much control over what it's going to be into. And this seems really bad. Um, so I think that's most of my position. And then, like, the real question is, how did I get those first two premises or something? Um, to be honest, I'm, like, much more interested in Quentin's uh, position because it's, like, new stuff to me. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, I guess I, like do want to try like some of this I, I do want to try like being like okay so quentin has a repartitioning of the analogy and i'm like cool seems like a pretty legit repartitioning but i'm also like what's wrong with the other partition or something um i guess one part like the main thing that i see is like like the partitioning seems like a choice or something, um, but then like the the part that's like a, a genuine criticism that like gives me pause is like the disanalogy. The disanalogy being like the thing I was trying to say before, where it's like uh, there's now this other process in the case of like human evolution that's cultural accumulation, and that's why you get the change in the slope of like accumulated information, um, and we're just not going to get that in SGD. Uh, like, you know, before I tried to be like, well, I don't know, I guess like if you had a model and then like, you know, at gradient descent step, like a billion, you're like, you let it like write down some shit and then you let like the next instantiation of it during SGD, like read that thing or something. And it's like much more information or something than like you might get this problem. Um, but I'm like, yeah, so I agree that's not going to happen, or that's just like a, a weird thing, uh, or it's like pretty unlikely to happen. Um, but I'm like not super sold on how much of a disanalogy this really is with like the actual situation that we find ourselves in. Like in particular, I'm like, uh, here's a thing that seems pretty plausible, pretty plausible to me. Like, at some point, we're going to like have systems that are like learning online and learning online really efficiently. Uh, which to me, well, let, let's just, I'll just say this one premise uh, and then see if Quentin agrees with it. At some point, we're going to have systems that are learning online and are learning online efficiently. So they're not going to be like, the way that they're learning online is not going to be through like just reinforcement learning or something. They're going to be doing it some other like pretty clever way. Uh, yeah. Uh, does Quentin agree with that? Um. Yeah, so you will have like online learning systems. They'll do something that's like cleverer than current RL approaches. But it's not clear to me that you can get like that much cleverer than current RL approaches. So, huh. for example, um, evolution and human AI design, like I mentioned previously, they converge to like shockingly similar principles. Um, RL seems like a very elegant sort of approach, uh, and I don't really buy this, any of the theoretical arguments about 
there necessarily being something that much cleverer than RL to do. And also, oh, okay. it seems wow. to me like Wait. there are theoretical arguments in the other direction. Yeah, so I'm like, well, I have some reinforcement learning, and that's like probably how like most of the bits of my cognition, I don't know, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I want to say most, but that's definitely how some of the bits of my cognition got into my mind. Um, but also, like, I'm learning a whole, I've learned so much in the last hour and a half. Uh, and the way that that happened is not the way that I learned to like chocolate. Um, you, like, said some sentences, and then I, like, did some cool stuff where I, like, thought about the sentences and thought about the implications of the sentences and thought about their relationships to each other and then, like, changed which sentences were, like, in my, like, I don't know, uh, in my, like, I'm willing to buy that for now set of sentences, or in, like, my I believe that set of sentences. Um, and, like, I changed some credences and stuff, and, like, all of this seems to me like it's definitely faster and more efficient and a different thing from reinforcement learning. Um, yeah, that's the super self-supervised thing, so... Or maybe it's, uh, but it's not, like... I mean, I don't know, It's it's not, like... I mean, my guess is, and maybe you have good reasons to disagree with this, but, like, my guess is that, like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, like... It's sort of, like, conceptually similar to a self-supervised learning on generated dialogue. So you could imagine a language model doing something similar where it, like, receives some argument and then writes a bunch of internal dialogue about how it should update on this argument and then decides which of that dialogue is like saying true stuff about the argument and about its other prior knowledge, and then decides to like train itself on the portions of its dialogue that seems most accurate to it. Um, yeah. I mean, I... so like what I'm saying is that the base optimizer is doing like self supervised plus RL. And you have like, various clever ways of leveraging this but still like the engine which underlies this the like updating rule underneath your cognition is still the same sort of thing hmm i guess that i guess it's yeah i keep wanting to say the sentence like i don't think my neurons are changing very much during this conversation but like that's obviously false but there's something nearby that i mean uh yeah. Which is, I, I'm not sure what it is, uh, but like, I, I don't know. I'm kind of imagining that like, if, even if you stopped doing the reinforcement learning on my brain and just like made my brain be static so that like the uh, connections between neurons didn't change, that like I would still learn during this conversation and say different things after the conversation that I would have otherwise or something. Yeah. So like wait, if wait. you lost the ability to form long-term memories or even to acquire skills, you could like continue a conversation within the context of your brain activity that's going on at the moment. And there's certain amounts of limited learning that can occur in that context. And we see a very similar thing happen with language models where they can like learn in context without updating their weights. Um, but once you try to like compound this learning over a long period of time, you see uh, that it doesn't really work and you eventually do need to do like backdrop into the weight space. Okay, so I'm like, yeah, I, I think in context learning is maybe the closer analogy to what I mean. 
Um, and then there's like, I don't know, you have some way of like storing that for long-term stuff. Maybe it's backprop. Maybe it's like a ledger or something. Uh, but I'm like... Wait, so I have a dumb question. Is, yeah, is go this, for it. Is this like how, I don't know, if I keep talking to Bing, then Bing will say different things at the end of the conversation than the beginning of the conversation? Is that what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, yeah, okay. or, or or even just like you know, you give Bing like five examples of like translating an English sentence into French, and then you like give it a sixth English sentence, and then it's like, I see, I will translate it into French. Okay, cool, thanks. Yep, uh, and then I'm like, yeah, I don't know. There's th this is this seems like a kind of learning or something, um, and then I'm like, I did a whole bunch of learning during this kind like in in the sorry when I'm saying learning now, I I mean it in like the much more colloquial sense. Um, there's a bunch of learning that I did in this conversation with Quentin. And like, I don't think that mostly what was going on was reinforcement learning because that's too fucking slow. Uh, and I don't think that most of what was going on was stochastic gradient descent or like whatever, uh, any sorts of like, uh, like quick changes to my neurons. I think there was like some sort of like context going on or internal dialogue. And then somehow that gets stored and that's going to, the storing is going to have to be somehow in like a change in my neurons. Not really sure how memory formation works in humans. I'm not sure if anyone is. Um, but like the important point that I want to make is that like, this is a kind of learning that's like much faster than the reinforcement learning or something. And like, I don't know, I'm just like, we're going to end up with this in AI. And like, we are in fact going to end up with a situation where AIs are doing a kind of learning that is much faster than the stochastic gradient descent that they were doing. And then I'm like, I'm not sure that the disanalogy that Quentin was pointing out is actually so disanalogous. Does that make sense, Quentin? Yeah, I think the issue, so there are two issues here. One is that AIs like already do this, do this sort of thing that you're talking about where they become like better at learning from limited data over time. Um, you can see this in a variety of ways. Uh, one is that we can, okay, so let me, put it like this. There are these things in AI research that we call inductive biases. And they basically ask how, and they're the like, stuff about the AI which determines how it updates on a given piece of information. Like how does its functional behavior change once you train it on a particular example? Like once, it becomes good at a particular piece of training data. Like how does that generalize to other circumstances and how does its input output mapping change as a result of having trained on that piece of data? And it turns out that you can just like estimate the local inductive biases of an AI system through something called the neural tangent kernel. And um, people have looked at how these inductive biases change over time during training. And it turns out that they get better over time, that they align with the distribution of labels on the training data you give them in such a way that they can like change their functional behavior more efficiently on less training data as compared to when they were like randomly initialized at the start. So they do get like better at learning as they learn. They learn to learn over time even though there's no explicit part of the training algorithm which says this is the little bit which handles that part of the learning process or anything like that. Um, and so when you talk about how like 
you have these really good inductive biases that let you update very quickly on a small amount of training data, that's where my mind goes. Like, it's not clear to me that this represents any sort of step change in the kind of knowledge acquisition processes that will allow like a sudden burst of AI capabilities process progress. And my, and my other point is that like, even suppose such a step change in like the space of possible learning algorithms did exist, there would still be no giant resource overhang to be exploited there. Like the thing that happened in human sharp left turn evolution, whatever, is that like the optimization process responsible for cross-generation simulation of capabilities turned out to be became like a billion times faster in a very short amount of time, exploiting a vast resource overhang. And we don't have those sorts of resource overhangs in deep learning. So hold on. Wait. Uh, I don't know. If I was to like train a system with like pairs of sentences in English and French, and I'm like, here's the English sentence, give me the French one. Uh, it's gonna be super fucking slow. Whereas if like I give GPT four like a couple of pairs of sentences in English and French, and then I give it an English sentence, uh, you know, I give it like five, and I give it a sixth English sentence, it's going to be like really good at knowing like, yep, I know what to do from these examples. I'll make it into French. And like, if I was training a system from scratch or something to just do the translating into French, it would take so much more data. Uh, yeah, because yeah. we have like a giant investment of resources into... GPT-4 beforehand and doing what's called amortized optimization, where rather than like directly optimizing to find a particular type of output, you're like learning the input-output relationship associated with a given function. And so amortized optimization differs from direct optimization in that it requires a much larger investment at the start of, at the beginning in order to learn the representation of that input-output relationship. But then once you've made that massive investment like you can uh get a much more efficient input output relate execution of that input output relationship as opposed to like trying to do direct optimization without having made that massive investment and so i don't see a reason to think that you should be able to find some third way of doing optimization which is like magically the best of both worlds so what we care about is like what's the maximum capabilities of the deep learning model you can get after having made these massive resource investments yeah i guess i'm still like sure but i don't know like at some point it seems like a model is going to be able to like add more compute to itself. Uh, but like, first of all, right now, like basically GPT-4 is like throwing away every context window, right? Yeah. Cool. And uh, I'm like, I don't know. At some point you can stop throwing away the context windows and like they're going to sequentially build on each other. Uh, and like, 
I don't know. Seems like you're going to get a pretty, like, wild accumulation of updates, of, like, information. And, like, I don't know. This this seems like, in fact, you're going to expect the slope to change. Um, no, yeah. I don't think so. For a number of reasons. Um, let's see here. So... One thing about scaling laws is that they've been like, so neural networks have these scaling laws, which tell you, which record, uh, or which predict for like certain amounts of resource investments of this and that kind, what kind of, what level of capabilities you get out of them, out of the neural network training process. And these scaling laws almost entirely have power law limiting behavior. So like you very quickly get diminishing returns on any given sort of resource investment. And I've looked for like scaling laws that don't have power law uh, diminishing returns as you invest more resources. And as far as I can tell, and please let me know anyone who has other uh, evidence to the contrary or other examples to the contrary. Like the only examples of this that I found so far are um, training processes that modify the data distribution structure in such a way as to no longer train on IID distributed data, so independently and identically distributed data. And this reflects like the recent Techmark paper about deriving scaling laws from uh, patterns present in the data distribution. And so my thought here is that like these sorts of schemes of, even if it were like possible at all to fill up the context window and enter into a different kind of learning as opposed to the parameter-based learning of SGD, even if that were possible, which I doubt, that you would not like phase transition into a systematically different way of doing generalization as compared to our current patterns. But you would be like limited in how far you can generalize from the data you're loading into the context window, whether the mechanism in question is like SGD over that data and then execution, or like load into the context window and then execution. And this expectation is like partially related to the way that neural scaling laws have turned out and also partially related to like actual research efforts on like comparing in context learning to just like fine tuning on the data. So like in context learning is useful because it's so convenient to just load up a model, execute it on a particular data context and then not have to like change the weights at all. Um, but like, there have been there have been multiple papers that show you can train them on the data that you would have put in the context window, and this is like pretty competitive with doing in context learning. Um, so, like the exact details of which is at advantage in what situation vary. So, I'm pretty skeptical that this would like be a phase transition into a new okay. form of growth. Here's a question. Do you think that like 
the sharp left turn would have gone faster if like we didn't need to use culture if like for instance if instead like humans just didn't die uh and like we just like had really good memories or something um do you think it would have gone faster or slower i'm not sure i can definitely see the argument for faster it also seems possible that you have like what John Wentworth would call optimization demons that would like hijack the cultural evolution process and we might get stuck at like local minima. Um, okay. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, that's like Grant. I guess, I guess my argument is, I guess my intuition says that it's like going to be faster and I'm just like, yeah, I'm yeah, I don't know. To grant I, yeah, that and I'm just, intuition. and what I cool. say and then I, yeah, and what I'd say in response is that um, that probably wouldn't work for deep learning, or the analogy I think you're trying to make would, doesn't work for deep learning because like each sequential state-of-the-art model is using geometrically more compute than had been used in the previous state-of-the-art model. And so even if you're like perfectly able to reuse the resources of the prior generations, that's not as nearly as much of an advantage for like AGI capabilities accumulation as it would have been for human capabilities accumulation. But I'm just confused. Like, why are we still using SGD? Like, like most of the learning humans do is not learning that's done through SGD. I think it probably, I think it's probably learning done not exactly through SGD, but through a pretty similar sort of optimizer. And so like one of the weird things about deep learning is that you can like, use whatever as your yeah. optimizer. And it will be like probably worse than SGD on an efficiency account, but it will probably behave pretty similarly to SGD in terms of like actually giving you a model which has learned stuff. So you can use like feedback alignment as an alternative optimizer that's thought to be biologically plausible. And people have like trained models with that alternative optimizer and it like works. Okay. I'm like if you, if I was born in the woods and I never met any other people and I didn't have any books, I'd be an idiot or something. Like I'd be much dumber than I am now. Uh, and like, I don't know, I would still do all the same reinforcement learning, but like, clearly I think we agree that like a bunch of like, what makes me smart is, uh, like all of these compressions that I've had, like that I, of like accumulated knowledge f- through like culture. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, Yeah, and, and like, sure, maybe the way that they, like, uh, let's do a totally fake model. Maybe maybe the way that they, like, get into, into like, my actual cognition is, like, through some sort of reinforcement learning where, where like, I don't know, you, you imagine that, like, I have a prompt and it's, like, I don't know, a piece of culture that I learned is, like, uh, I don't know, like, use Newton's third law when you want to predict how things move. And, like, that, like, gets to be associated with like, oh, I, I wonder how this thing moves. And then I like, remember, oh yeah, you use Newton's third law for that. But like the actual learning of like the having the Newton's third law or something, like sure, the way that I'm storing it maybe has to have has to have something to do with RL. Like somehow it's like a change in like my neurons. I'm not even sure that that's gonna be true for deep learning models. Um, like they might just store stuff better. Uh, but like they might just store stuff in like different ways uh, than like actually changing the weights. 
Um, like but like memorizing transformer or retro things like that. Yeah, or something like that. Like I don't know, like some sort of thing. Those things confuse me because I don't get how you like do like uh, whatever. I, I'm like confused about how you do uh, backprop on things like that. But like whatever. They, um, I'm like yeah, they don't. Yeah, um, I, I'm yeah, I'm I'm like e- either way. It just seems like look, man. If we're gonna get a whole bunch of models that are have like good memories and are like doing the same kind of learning that I do within a lifetime um, or doing the same kind of learning that like humans do within a lifetime in general, but like they don't have to go through the step of like compressing shit to give it to the next generation. They get to just like remember stuff. Uh, and then like, they also get to like improve their memories, get bigger memories and things like this. I'm like, I don't know. It seems like we're going to actually get a process a lot like this cultural accumulation process, except it's going to be like faster and better. Um, and then I'm like, I don't know, this analogy seems to like have gone away or something. Yeah. So AIs have like various cognitive strategies available to them, which are beyond or not available to humans. And that would grant them advantages. Uh, the most significant of which of course is being bigger and using more compute and more data than humans. Um, but. I don't expect these to be like all unlocked in an instant. Like whatever sort of new idea you think you might have for how AIs could be better than humans. Like, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, capabilities researchers are very clever people and they might not have thought of exactly your idea, but they've probably thought of something pretty similar, like memorizing transformers or the retro architecture. And these do not, empirically so far, these have not like been responsible for sudden giant leaps in the amount of capabilities a model has before and after implementing this clever new idea, at least not anything at the level of like the sharp left turn in human evolution. And also like, they're not these step changes in, they're like, like AI, most AI progress is like differences of degree and not of kind in the sorts of internal structures that different training processes are able to induce in the AIs. Like we have current AI systems which are capable of self-improving in various ways, but they're just kind of like shit at it. Um, and they will gradually over time become like less shit at it. And I don't think that ever gets you like a sharp left turn. Um, I'm like, okay. I don't know. Humans did this thing over like what, like 10,000 years? Probably longer than, well, yeah, I guess it depends on like what you call the beginning of civilization, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know, like 10,000 to 100,000 years, let's say. Um, and I don't know, like, so first of all, we like noticed that humans could do it. Um, and they did it some way. Uh, it seems to me like the in-context learning is like an important ingredient to it happening. Uh, and like the fact that in-context learning is like better than reinforcement learning in some ways uh, also seems important to it. Uh, and I'm just kind of like, 
okay, it, like, you know, it, it seems like there is a kind of learning that does this kind of thing. Uh, it seems open to deep learning models. Um, like, and my proof of that is humans did it. Um, and then I'm just kind of like, I doubt that the way that humans do it is the best way to do it. Uh, and I also kind of doubt that like, and I, and I also just kind of think that like, if you don't ha if you don't have to do the compressions that where you're like sending compressions forward to the next generation, it seems like probably it's going to go better or, or something. Don't you have to do the um, compressions? I don't think you have to do the compressions. I'm just like, yeah, I'm here's... pretty sure you do. There's like, what? There's yeah, going to why? be some steps. And whatever AIs do to like improve themselves, there's going to be some step required where you differentiate between like good demonstrations of trying to achieve a particular objective versus bad demonstrations. And if you don't have this step, which is like discarding bad information, then like you'll just learn bad things. So like one of the things that culture did was it like forced a bottleneck on the volume of the training data so that it could only be like high quality training data, which no, no, let me step back because like culture didn't actually do that. Um, so I don't think a cultural accumulation is primarily happening through like in context mechanisms. I think of it as happening through like what in machine learning is called model distillation. So where you have like one model whose capabilities you want to imitate in another model, you get a bunch of outputs from the first model, train the second model on those outputs. And then the second model is like, as good or often better than the first model. Um, okay, hold on. I'm like, what like Newton did when Newton was like chilling in some place and like came up with Newtonian mechanics. I'm like, that happened in context. And then there's like the step of getting that to other humans. But like, learning Newtonian mechanics was like, you know, mostly a process of like writing shit down and like doing some like reasoning was not a process of like reinforcement learning or SGD or anything like that. Like the closest analogy in my current way of analogizing these things to what Newton was doing is like in context reasoning or something. With like maybe the writing shit down also, but like. I think it would be something like um, the paper large language models can self-improve or something like that, where the model like produced some output judge the quality of the output, and then if it was good quality, you decided to train on that output. So the mechanism by which this output becomes like a lasting component of the model's knowledge going forwards is SGD over that output as like training data. And then there's a discriminator part where the model has to be able to judge which of its outputs are good or bad. And so in my mind, like what Newton was doing was some sibling process to like producing a number of plausible seeming to him rules about gravity, considering the quality of those rules, and then using some sort of process whose ultimate base level workforce is in fact an SGD and analog over his neurological structure to make that like output part of his beliefs going forwards. So okay, sure, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm with you that like, sure, I, I'm with you on that. But like, there's still the part 
that like seems like the more powerful part, which is like I don't know, when like Newton writes down the first half of the third law, he like then tends to output the second half or something. Or he's like more likely to output the second half than to like output and boys are beautiful or something or random gibberish. Um like that that seems like a pretty important part. And like maybe the way that, that gets there is through SGD and it, like the way that, that gets there in the first place is SGD. But like still there's like this reasoning thing happening, which is not just SGD. Yeah, I'd basically call this like self training on self created data, curated data. Um it's the sort of thing that like machine learning research does and it is like useful to a certain degree and then you reach a point where you can no longer like distinguish between the your outputs based on their relative quality and then it kind of peters out. So how do you feel about like the argument that goes like Newton could do this, so some deep learning will be able to do it or something better? How do you feel about that argument? Good. I'm cool. saying it's, I, mean, I am saying like um, deep learning can do it. It's just not as transformative. I don't think it's as transformative as you seem to be thinking. Um, can, at some point, I would love to try to summarize what I think is happening now, partly to catch myself up. Sure. Like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Although I do want to come back to what I think of as this point. Um, I'm just going to quickly say, like, a handle for myself. Sorry, audience. Yeah, please. Uh, something like, I don't know. I'm like, look, looks like there's some other kind of reasoning that happens besides SGD, and, like, Quentin's on board with this. Uh, and I'm like, uh, humans did this thing with cultural accumulation of knowledge. Um, and uh, looks like ML systems could do a fairly similar thing and, like, likely will do a fairly similar thing. Um, if if they if ML systems someday become like as smart as humans, I expect them to do something like this. Uh, and I'm like also like uh, seems like you will get some sort of process that is kind of like uh, the accumulation of information through culture, um, except like plausibly faster and better. Uh, okay, sorry. Go, go, no, go that's, ahead, that's pretty similar to what I was going to say, but a little different. So I'm going to say my version, sure. something like that. So we've already sort of covered the part where um, Quentin has repartitioned the um, evolution analogy in a way that he thinks is a lot tighter. And we're sort of exploring that. And I think, Ronnie, you're like, okay, but for the sharp left turn and fast accumulation of capabilities, in the evolution, there was this sort of like cultural knowledge overhang and like, are we sure that there isn't going to be some sort of other overhang once there's like, we're adding a much more powerful reasoning process to an already large and, uh, I don't know, trained on a bunch of useful information language model. So is that maybe a point of analogy that like reemerges? I don't know, that that is in fact more, might cause something like a foom or a sharp left turn or both is that am i reading this correctly yeah that's right although like i don't know this is like closer to like yeah 
Also, to be clear, I'm like thinking on the fly. I'm just like, oh man, I have all these new ideas from Quentin. Maybe I can think using them and see what Quentin says about my thinking using them or something. Um, so you maybe want to clarify that you're not like necessarily doing this in a goal-directed, like here's what gets me this hypothesis type of way. You're just like, okay, but like, how does this fit here? How does this fit here? What can I make of all of this? Yeah, specifically when I read the post, like the last time I read the post uh, before having this conversation, I was like, uh, I don't know. I was just like, the main disanalogy that Clinton seems to be pointing out is that like we had this cultural accumulation of knowledge for humans. And I'm like, I don't know. It just seems like, so, you know, abstracting away, this is like, there's going to be some way for, humans had some way of, accumulating information that was much more efficient than SGD. Um, and then I'm like, yeah, I expect this to also happen for ML systems. Uh, okay. And you're now sort yeah. of exploring with the new, uh, like you, you sort of taken the repartition to heart. And with that in mind, you're exploring your continued intuition that there's probably going to be some way that the ML models are going to do something kind of like human cultural accumulation. Yeah, or that at least, like, doesn't, like, like, sorry, there's, like, two steps here. There's, like, step one is, like, Quentin's repartitioning of the analogy. And I'm like, yeah, that seems pretty cool. I like that repartitioning of the analogy. And then there's, like, Quentin's claim that, like, with this repartitioning of the analogy, you can now see that there's an important disanalogy between evolution and how we should expect ML training to go when we get to, like, super smart models. Uh, and I'm like, I don't by that the disanalogy is that like now we can see that the, that the, there is this important disanalogy that being that like you got uh cultural accumulation cool thanks i feel like i'm caught up enough now cool yeah so my position is that like data augmentation or like online learning and those sorts of things are going to be important elements of the stuff that actually gets us to super intelligence. Um, I think that there's not like a phase transition, or I think there's probably not going to be like a phase transition in how quickly those sorts of things accumulate capabilities over time as compared to our current uh, rate of progress. I also pretty strongly disagree that like they'd operate on fundamentally different principles than like SGD. I think the mechanism you're pointing to in like human cultural evolution gain over time is basically like, is a sibling reinforcement process. learning. Oh, no, no, no. Um, not Wait, I, not sorry. reinforcement learning. Uh, let, me, let me say a thing that I thought you thought, uh, and then you tell me where I'm fucking up. Um, I thought you thought that like each generation of humans is like doing a bunch of reinforcement learning over their lifetime. And then they like compress the information gained from that reinforcement learning and like pass it on. Uh, but you're like, yeah. So that's one thing that but... happens across generations. So it's more like, okay. So it's more closely approximate, more closely similar to like model distillation in the context of machine learning rather than, whatever you mean by compression. Um, but then you're talking about like in-context learning for a single human lifetime as opposed to like cross-generational 
transition between different quote-unquote human models. And in that context, I think there's a slightly different sort of ML process that's most analogous to what you're talking about in the human instance, which is like self-operated uh, data curation or data augmentation where like model outputs are used to refine the training data for the model itself. Um, and I think there's just like a difference in degree between how good a superintelligence will be at this as compared to how good humans are at this. And I don't think the speed with which this difference in degree arises is sufficient. I'm so sorry. I okay. I did a I did a thing that I thought would have no effect on whether the space was happening and I was wrong. And yeah, sorry. That's okay. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Anyway, it? The okay. last thing you were saying was there's like yeah, there is some ML process that like you think <clears throat> Sorry, I, I wanna quickly just say like I'm like Look, sometimes I ask GPT-4 a question, like a puzzle, and then it like gets a good answer. Um, and it like does some reasoning within one context window. And it seems like the things it says earlier in the context window, like I can predict whether it's going to get a good answer based off of it. Like sometimes it says good shit earlier in the context window. And sometimes it says kind of dumb shit to relevant. And like uh, when it says good stuff first, it like ends up getting the right uh, the, the right answers to the puzzle. And I'm like, this thing that's happening on like the level of like 10 minutes. I'm like, that's where the sauce is or something. Um, the, the, uh, does, does that make sense, Quentin? And like, this thing seems like different from SGD. Uh, I mean, it's like sampling from the conditional distribution as opposed to updating that distribution. So it is like different from SGD, but you can't use it in the way you're thinking about to get like compounding gains over time without SGD. Sure. Uh, like I agree that the storing, at least in humans, happens through some sort of SGD-ish thing. Uh, I'm not sure that the storing is going to happen through some SGD-ish thing in models but like i don't know seems plausible to me uh but like the reasoning itself is like something that seems cooler that we can only find with sgd does that seem true i mean you're talking about completely different things right the model instantiates a particular function and when you're talking about like outputs of the function and how those outputs relate to the past outputs of the function. This is like the conditional distribution that the model represents. 
and SGD is like the process of changing that distribution over time. So yeah, yeah, they are totally different things, but yeah, but also they both kind of do the same sort of thing in some ways. Like, for instance, learning from examples. Yeah, and I don't think in some contexts where like SGD has already primed the models to learn from examples similar to these, then you can get like in context learning. But in a lot of ways, that's like only conditioning the pre existing knowledge to activate in a way that wouldn't necessarily have been clear if you hadn't given in context examples. And also it's quite limited in terms of like how far you can go with this sort of mechanism, as well as like costing you more money than just running the model itself. So it seems to me there are like lots of issues that prevent you from using this thing to have like a difference in kind that could drive a sharp left turn as opposed to a difference in degree that like accumulates over time and is only like situationally useful and so on and so forth. So yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I'm so... slightly confused here because like you say that, I don't know, like you, you agree that there's like this thing that happened with humans where like we got human cultural accumulation. This is like some mechanism for gaining accumul like accumulating information over time. Uh, and it was different from just SGD, although, like, the storing happened with SGD, and, like, I don't know, there was also, like, a cultural well, evolution. Yeah. Well, I don't think it was, like, different from SGD. I think it was, like, faster than biological evolution. So, maybe putting it like this would be more helpful. From the practice of deep learning as we've experienced it in the modern age, it seems like scale and resource inputs are very important yep. for driving the rate of progress to the point where we have like the scaling laws yep. to predict progress as a function of inputs. And so like this seems to suggest we're in a continuous takeoff sort of world. Um, but there are but the human evolutionary example is like a potential counterpoint to this argument where Human evolution, like the number, the amount of optimization that evolution's put into humans over time remained constant, but our capabilities exploded much more quickly. And so my position is basically, oh, but if you track which optimizer was responsible for capabilities accumulation at different points in human evolution, and you think about their relative amounts of resources that are available to it, like then things suddenly start making sense in the like scaling laws frame where it's resources input that determine capabilities output. Um, and so it's like, wait, I don't necessarily see this like normalizes or 
Yeah. Uh, uh, this this reminds me of like another thing that confused me about your post, where it's like you're like, okay, when should you expect? Uh, let's see. Let me see if I can actually find it real quick. Sorry. You're like. Like, I don't know. It, it seems like you're assuming that, like... Uh, da, da, da. You're like, okay. So, like, you're like, one. Uh, so, in order to experience a sharp left turn, I'm quoting from Quinton's post now. In order to experience a sharp left turn that arose due to the same mechanistic reasons as a sharp left turn of human evolution, an AI developer would have to one, deliberately create a very obvious inner optimizer whose inner loss function includes no mention of human values slash objectives. Uh, two, grant that optimizer billions of times greater optimization power than the outer optimizer. Uh, so yeah, in the footnote for very obvious, this is the second footnote on the post. Um, it's like, if you, if you suspect that you've maybe accidentally developed an evolution uh, style inner optimizer, uh, look for a part of your system that's updating its parameters approximately a billion times more frequently than your explicit outer optimizer. And I'm like, is that really the the thing or something? Like, was cultural evolution updating the parameters of humans a billion times fast more frequently than evolution was? Like, but it's not. But it's not cultural evolution, which is the inner optimizers. Here, it's human within lifetime learning, which is doing the semantic update. Like I mentioned previously, like you said, right. you update per second, 20 year lifetime. That's 1.2 billion times faster. Cool. And then I'm, I'm just, um, yeah, it, it just, it just doesn't seem right that like, for, like this kind of seems to assume that like the way that the optimizers act on the intelligence are like of the same type or something. Like either way, it's through parameter changes. Whereas, like, I don't know, like, the in-lifetime learning of models might be not through parameter changes. It might be done some other way. Um, or, like, even, I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, so, um, one intuition pump, which is, like, driving my expectation of convergence in the alignment-relevant behaviors of these different ways of tuning models is that people have actually tried to do meta-learning over the training process. So it turns out that you can just like do SGD over SGD updates. So you can do an SGD update to a model and then you can do a meta-update on that SGD update and you can like update the model's parameters so that it would have learned more as a result of the first SGD update you did. Right? So... Like at the start of the, so people did this. Um, uh, it's called model agnostic meta learning, MAML. And then a while later, people like other capabilities researchers like looked at this process and analyzed what it was actually doing in terms of changing the models and externals. And they realized that it was basically just like doing normal feature learning in the same way that like normal SUD would. And they proposed a modified version of that algorithm, which is called almost no inner loop at all. Um, and they were able to like cut out the meta learning part of it 
for the most part and get basically the same sort of performance as you got with the meta learning, but just mostly doing like first order feature learning. Um, and this is like not an uncommon outcome where initially different seeming learning processes end up doing like quite similar things in terms of how they change the model internals. Um, and so I'm just like left in this area of skepticism that you can, that there's necessarily this free lunch to be had in terms of like better than SGD-esque processes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Especially considering we've like tried to do try to do like compounding in context learning sort of stuff. And it's like not that amazing. Yeah. I guess I still think that most of the learning I do is not SGD. And that seems like an existence proof to me or something um, that you can do better. Um, and I also think that like most of the learning that GPT-4 does within a context window is not uh, SGD. Well, clearly not. Yeah. Because it's like yeah, sure. Frozen weights. And then I'm like, I don't know, there seems to be this extra sauce and maybe you store the sauce using SGD. Maybe you store it some other way, but there is this other sauce. And yeah, I don't know that. Well, you can just like think mathematically about what sort of an object GPT-4 is. It's a conditional probability distribution factorized uh, autoregressively. And so, like, think about what you can do with a conditional probability distribution. You can, like, sample from it, and you can look for parts of it that are better to sample from. Sure. And this is what's done with, like, prompt tuning and that sort of thing. Sure. But eventually, you, like, reach the limits of the sorts of capabilities that you can get out of this conditional probability distribution because it's not, like, calibrated to correctly predict, um, I don't know, like, jet engine designs or whatever, because it, that didn't appear in its training data. Um, so it just seems to me that like if you look at the empirical limits on generalization of like scaling that scaling laws imply, or also like the limits that you can get in terms of in-context execution with like the resources you invest into say Monte Carlo search over possible conditional sampling versus like how good that conditional sampling actually is. You also encounter another scaling law with power law, um, tail decay. Uh, so sure. Uh, th that seems right to me, but like, there are things Newton can do that don't seem, or Newton did, 
that don't seem like they're just like sampling from a probability distribution or like i don't know maybe they are but it, if so it's like an extremely universal probability distribution and like i don't know there's like a whole bunch of shit there's like visualizing and there's like learning a field of mathematics uh and there's like i don't know all sorts of stuff that like will change associations between different thoughts in your brain um and like having really good associations so that like once you see something changing you think of like storing it as a function or something um like this seems kind of like the important stuff or something. And like, I don't know, like, you know, Newtonian mechanics was importantly not in the training distribution of Newton. He like made it up uh, or like figured it out or whatever. And I'm like, yep. Most of figuring that out sure seems like it relied on like more fundamental principles or something than just sampling randomly from a distribution or something like it probably involved a bunch of like visualizing involved a bunch of like imagining stuff involved a, yeah so two points yeah um one is that uh sampling from a conditional distribution will get you like many different paths that can lead to making the same sort of general a given type of generalization so for one, you could hope to like immediately derive Newtonian mechanics in one sampling step. Now, this will not work if you're Newton and haven't like included Newtonian mechanics in your in your training corpus. Another step is to another way to get to this sort of generalization is to do sampling from different parts of your conditional distribution. So, sampling from like valid mathematical inference steps. Um, that sort of thing, where you basically like compose multiple known steps that are all individually part of your training distribution in a way that like leads you to an output where you don't have many training examples of like directly going to that sort of an output. Would you consider this like a plausible story? of the thing Newton did under the like conditional sampling sort of interpretation of what a trained model is. Ah, uh, but uh, sure. I, I think maybe I want to deny the frame or something. It just seems like there's, I don't know. It... Could you run me through the story again? Let... Yeah, so maybe it would be better to put this in terms of like modular arithmetic. So if you like train a model to do modular arithmetic, it's pretty hard. Like they have difficulty generalizing from 57 mod or like 57 times 400 mod 13 or whatever. If you just like say this equals x and ask them to immediately predict the x, they have a lot of difficulty. But it turns out that you can like train them on doing chains of thought to arrive at, to like execute a modular arithmetic algorithm. And they're much better at this. They can learn that generalization much more quickly if instead of like immediately jumping from 
the equation to the answer, they go the equation, the first step of setting up the problem, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so the thing they're learning is not to make the generalization directly, but to like make a bunch of smaller steps of, that require less generalization, which when composed together, let them make the overall final generalization. Yep. Uh, yeah, and so my view of like coming up with new mathematics, say, is that this is mostly like the composition of many on distribution individual steps into a generalization step that like would be very difficult to perform without the tree existing with the level of training data that already exists. Yeah, okay. Um, I think I'm okay with that. Uh, and like, we both agree that this is not SGD. I think we both agree that like, it's smarter than SGD, I want to say. I feel like you... Oh, that was the, that was the second point I was going to say. It's not necessarily smarter than SGD. Um, like, it's high status among humans to engage in this sort of reasoning and to do it correctly. But part of the reason it's like high status to do this in humans is because it's actually a very difficult kind of reasoning to do. Um, um, wait, sorry. When I say it's smarter than SGD, like, maybe the upfront costs are, like, bigger or something. But, like, once you pay them, you kind of, like, get this stuff for free or something. Like, it... No... Sorry, get which stuff for free? Like, once you train GPT-4, you can, like, it's very cheap to run it. Yeah, like, amortized optimization over the training process and cheaper execution. Yeah, that's true. But, like, you can't use this sort of composition of smaller steps to reduce a general inference for all problems. Um, and the reason... Like one of the reasons you can't do it is because it's actually like very difficult to do correctly, which is part of the reason why it's like high status among humans to uh, be seen as the sort of person who can do this correctly. Um, I wonder can... if there's some sort of terminology thing where Ronnie, you're like, it's smarter and Quentin, you're like, but it's harder. And I, I well, don't know, those things don't, am I missing something? Well, like, the question is, um, how much capabilities do you get out of a given investment of resources into this sort of thing? And like, Ronnie is saying the capabilities are high, and I'm saying the investment of resources has to be high. So, yeah, Ronnie, how do you feel about like measuring this in terms of like capabilities you gain per resources? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty happy about that. I mean, like, I, I, I guess I think that like the there's like a fixed cost that's pretty high um but then like the marginal costs per capability are like really good compared to the marginal costs per capability of sgd you're saying that there's a fixed cost to being able to do that sort of reasoning process yeah at all, yeah like you have to train the you reasoning have, process yeah you have to like train your newton in the first place Right, but then you think that Newton having additional thoughts is actually going to be cheap per computation compared to doing gradient descent. Or like descent. cheap per capability gain. 
Or sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. Cheap as measured by computation per capability. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, Quentin, if you agree that like once the upfront cost is paid, whether it's cheap at that point. It depends on what you're trying to do capabilities gain in. So, like, like I said, I, I guess I'm I like, said the, you, you know, like learning Newtonian mechanics seems like a capability gain, uh, or like plausibly it could have been. Um, like, I don't know, in an alternative world where none of us knew Newtonian mechanics and we still had deep learning somehow, uh, and then like a model discovered Newtonian mechanics and like was able to use it to like make technologies in the way that humans were able to, I'd be like, Yep, that seems like a capabilities gain, or like was able to use it to predict the mo movement of objects in the way that humans do. I'd be like, yep, that seems like a capability gain. Um, yeah, so some of the generalizations you can do with this sort of composition of smaller steps are like useful in the way of Newtonian mechanics. Some of them are like much harder than coming up with Newtonian mechanics. And like, there are problems for which this sort of composition of smaller steps is actually like very bad um, and significantly worse, I think, than what SGD does. Um, I agree. To give a concrete, so yeah, to give a concrete example of such a kind of problem, um, the protein folding problem, as it happens. So like humans who are very general smart intelligences, at least compared to AlphaFold 2, uh, spent a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of like in-context learning and theorizing and trying to generalize from our like theories of how to do math and how to and like how quantum mechanics and chemistry and so on and so forth work. And then AlphaFold 2, which is like much dumber, which like doesn't use that sort of in context reasoning to build up knowledge over time. It just uses like, or mostly like SGD plus like some mixture of, I think like a bunch of iterative executions. I've actually forgotten its architecture, but the yeah, primary I mean, I think this is, this is interesting and also a point of agreement, right? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think I agree. I mean, like another example, I'm like, less confident in i think your example is better but like i don't know just like walking you know uh if i had to like control my muscles doing like the kind of uh slower reasoning that like i'm talking about here like that seems pretty fucking hard um where like yeah i i don't know i mean maybe we could figure it out if we like spent as much time on it as as much effort on it as newton did on figuring out newtonian mechanics or whatever um pretty sure we couldn't yeah, but like, yeah, I don't know. Like, also, sorry, yeah, can I propose, like, would you say that you're roughly talking? I don't normally like these terms very much, but it seems like you're roughly talking about system one, system two stuff. Is that like a yes or no? Uh, I think that's like, I don't know. I'm like, that's that's an okay, uh, like. But the point we're discussing isn't like, whether system two exists or is useful it's like whether you can transition away from learning via sgd to like learning via system two explicit reasoning well yeah. okay that sorry can i can i interject what i thought ronnie was saying maybe it wasn't what you were sure, saying ronnie. but maybe it was better go for it I, okay so i think like to me this seems non-central because there's a question of like 
Okay, sure. Different problems. Some of them are more amenable to like more like gradient descent. Some of them are more amenable to something like reasoning. But I guess I would certainly think that, um, I don't know, if I have a system that can do either and has some ability to like either use discernment or just experimentation to sometimes use one and sometimes use the other, then it would be, then that could be substantially more powerful than one could only one could only do one, even even if it's only useful on a pretty small class of problems, because I don't know, those problems are important and there exists some of them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a quick, quick pop up the stack the... And, and then I'm going to give it to you, Clinton. Uh, like the reason I brought this up is like I was like, so I summarized Clinton as being like, there's this important disanalogy with uh, the evolution thing, which is that like humans, in fact, had this like other process for accumulating information, which was like uh, different in kind from the process of evolution. And then I'm like, yeah, that seems right. And seems like a good criticism of the original argument, uh, except that I'm like, I'm not sure that there is such a disanalogy. I like do expect there to at some point be a kind of information uh, accumulation in ML systems that is different in kind from SGD. Um, and then I think Quentin's kind of like, nah, it's pretty SGD-ish in the first place. And also it's like not that sick or something. Uh, I don't know. He's actually saying more sophisticated things that I'm not tracking, maybe. Go for it. Yeah, pretty much that. I And also, like, um, I think that AI capability development over time is like a fairly continuous sort of thing. Where before we have the system that does X really well, we have the system that does X kind of okay-ish. And before that, we usually even have the system that does X like quite shittily. And sometimes, like we even have before that, the system that did X absolutely terribly and that no one realized was doing X, but was actually doing X in retrospect. Um, okay. Th so... this, this is like uh, addressing the will it happen quickly or more smoothly, right? Yeah. Okay, and Ronnie, you've had your hand up. What's the... Yeah, so I meant to ask this before, but I never got around to it. Um, so you're, like, on board that humans over the course of, like, I don't know, 100 to 10,000 years uh, did a sharp left turn. Um, question, does it seem plausible to you? Like, would you predict that ML systems over the course of, like, some number of thousands of years uh, will do a sharp left turn? Maybe if, like, hypercomputation turns out to be a thing and there's, like, some galaxy brain thing you can do but with black holes that gives you, like, infinite computing power or quantum computers turn out to be way more useful than I think they probably will be. Um, or there's, like, deeper physics that allow for vastly better computing. Um, then you could potentially have, like, a sharp left turn for the same mechanistic reasons as evolution had a sharp left turn. This, um, I, however, yeah. However, I will add that in my post about like evolution provides no evidence for the sharp left turn, I laid out two different scenarios in which I thought there could be like potentially maybe a fast takeoff, a sudden increase in AI capabilities due to two 
potential mechanisms that I think are different from what underlies the sharp left turn. And I talked about how like that fast state calc would probably have a different alignment relevant characteristics as opposed to the sharp left turn and how those different characteristics related to the difference in mechanism behind the two types of ways of accumulating capabilities more quickly over time. Yeah. And I, I guess I want to be like, uh, how do you feel about this as like a summary of our disagreement? Um, I'm like, you're like, first you were like, there's this important disanalogy, which is that there, dude, another optimizer started optimizing humans and it like did it much more. That's why the slope changed. And I'm like, yep. But like the optimizers that are optimizing ML systems right now are like pretty much just SGD. And at some point, like there's going like right now, I don't know, uh, large language models pretty much like throw away every instance, like every context window. And like at some point they won't. Um, will it be a billion times more than what you get out of SGD? I don't know. Maybe not. Like seems plausible that it wouldn't be. Um, Will this happen super quickly compared to how it happened with humans? Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, like, I'm kind of coming around to that. Uh, depends how fast you can do it. Um, my guess is faster, but, like, uh, yeah, not that much super faster. Um, and then I'm like, yeah, so it looks to me like you are going to get a difference in kind kind of optimization acting on ML models, like when they start learning online and like doing kinds of reasoning and like re re remembering like new laws that they discover or like remembering like new heuristics that they discover for reasoning. Um, and I'm like, this is like a pretty different kind of sauce from SGD. And then I think you've been saying something like, nah, man, this is not such a different sauce from SGD. That like, first of all, it's not that much cooler than SGD. And second of all, like it's really more SGD-ish than you're letting on. Uh, do you want to yeah and also we've like tried basically this uh, with current types of AI systems and it's like not that much of a jump yeah I mean true but like we're also current AI systems are like much dumber than Newton and I'm like I don't know Newton did it so probably AI systems at some point will be able to do it um, question, to be sure, like, if you thought that there is going to be some other optimization process that's going to, like, act on ML systems, uh, and it's going to, like, I don't know, be exerting more pressure on ML systems than, uh, just, like, continued SGD runs, um, like, you would more so than you do now predict a sharp left turn in ML systems. Is that true? I can't, like, how would that possibly happen? Yeah, so, like, like I, don't, I don't know. The, the way that I'm imagining is, like, uh, you know, I don't know. We have, this is definitely not how it actually happens, but here's, here's a way too specific scenario. Um, like you, we have these like really big large language models. They're really good at doing like reasoning within a context window. 
And then, like, I don't know, they start storing stuff and, like, prompting themselves with, like, better stuff when they get a new problem. Uh, and then, like, they, like, every time you run them, they, like, you know, check out different prompts and are, like, oh, you know what, this new prompt is way better. And then they, like, find a bunch of, like, reasoning heuristics and, like, laws and stuff like this. Uh, and then, like, their prompts just get much better as uh, every time that you run them. Uh, and, you know, somehow this is, like, exerting more pressure on them. Like, imagine that, like, we're not even changing the weights anymore. We're just, like, storing the prompts. In, they're just storing the prompts in some place using some, like, other kind of like selection mechanism for the prompts. Um, I'm like, there's, or, or there's some other optimizer within them that like is online and is like trying out different prompts every time that they're run. Uh, and then like selecting prompts based off of like the kind of thing you were describing where it's like, yep, this prompt performed really well. So I'm going to keep using prompts kind of like this uh, or, or whatever. Um, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking like could turn out that this has like a bigger effect than like, you know, spending another billion, billion dollars making the model bigger and doing more SGD. So, like, the models become prompt engineers? Yeah, that's definitely not how it's actually going to happen. But, like, you know, some shit like that. Okay, and we grant the premise that this is, like, how much faster than SGD? Are you thinking? Ah, oh, man. Well, see, it seems to me like it could be much faster than SGD because I'm like, I don't know. Like, if we tried to figure out Newtonian mechanics with just SGD, it would be really hard. Uh, I mean, I think it would depend on your training data. Sure. Or like, or like I don't know, with the data Newton had over his lifetime, I'd be like, yep, that's going to be hard. I mean, not. I think it depends on how you would do that ML experiment. Newton's had like a bunch of observational data. That's true. Which he like threw away. Kepler, right? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I can. I can totally imagine that like some clever way of doing physics-inspired ML stuff would end up with like a model that had circuitry equivalent to Newtonian mechanics in it when trained on that sort of data. Maybe like, maybe like you need more data than Newton had, but not necessarily like a different kind of data, I think. Yeah, no, I think that seems right. And I also think like Newton threw away a bunch of his data in some sense, like uh, just because his memory isn't very good. Um, but like, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm like still interested in the question, like regardless of how totally implausible it is, like popping up the stack slightly, like uh, if there were some other optimization process that was acting on models besides SGD and it was like pretty fast, say it was like as fast as human cultural accumulation or whatever, um, you would predict a sharp left turn, but like it might take thousands of years or something. Uh, if I'm understanding. If it's as relatively faster as SGD is over. Uh, that's, as relatively yeah, faster yeah, 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 as SGD yeah. was over 
evolution, then it probably wouldn't take a thousand years. Um, yeah, so if you have an optimizer that's like much faster than our current optimizers, and you assume a way like it gets stuck in various situations, which I think would actually happen. Um, but like granting those promises, capabilities do increase pretty quickly as compared to our current um, trajectory. Um, in terms of like alignment, it depends on two things. One, it depends on like what the optimizer is doing and like how it makes its selection decisions about what sorts of behavioral patterns are or aren't appropriate. And the other thing it depends on is basically the underlying mechanism by which the optimizer influences the models in question um, and also the like parameter space of stuff that permanently stores the optimizer's adjustments to the system being optimized. Yeah, so without like more details on those sorts of things, I can't make any like particular predictions about whether how like alignment would fare under such a circumstance. Can you tell me sorry, can you tell me what, what, what you need details about again? Um yeah, so the most obvious thing is like the loss function of this new optimizer. Um, and in particular, like how the loss function interacts with the model behavior. So like what sort of model behaviors are assigned good loss versus which are assigned bad loss. Um, that's one pretty important detail. And then the second important detail is basically like the stuff that determines the inductive biases of this new optimizer. Uh, which my current guess is mostly determined by um, the parameter space over which the optimizer works, as well as uh, the mechanism by which that optimizer adjusts those parameters and how those and the mechanism by which those parameters adjust the model behavior. Okay, that makes sense. Um... I mean, I also think it would depend on those details or something. Uh, I mean, of course, it depends on those details or something. Um, yeah, well, those details are, quote, those details are something, end quote, includes literally everything. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we can confidently say that. The or, the, okay. the or something was operating on, like, the claim that it depends on the details. Not on, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also, I just want to note, I think... Um, I do, if you guys want to keep talking after eight, I'm fine with that. I think I'm going to at least be paying less attention starting at eight. Cause I sort of mentally budgeted for yep. that. Um, I was going to say so I, some... that maybe we should open up to questions if people have questions. Uh, okay. But I want to do one other thing okay. also. Um, there was, or I don't know. We can do that. There was a, at least a question from Daniel that I liked, uh, that, um, that I might that he tweeted that I might like to do. C can I also make an attempt to I don't know to summarize what I think is up there? 
there's a lot that I followed and definitely some stuff that I didn't follow. You guys okay with that? Okay, so I think what's going on is, I don't know, there's a lot we already covered. Um, and as I'll try to be fast with this summary, Ronnie, I think you were like, look, I like the repartitioning of the analogy, but I'm still not sure that the sort of critical parts for the sharp left turn are in fact a point of disanalogy. And I think the source of your intuition here, um, you can of course correct me, is something like, I don't know, looking at other people and introspecting on myself, it seems like this sort of, there's this like thing that humans do that other animals don't do that if, if we extrapolate it, seems like it could get super powerful. And then that could then be the point of the analogy, the point of analogy where that's like a step change. And that's sort of the analog to cultural evolution. And I think then Quentin, you keep being like, mm, or maybe not, because in fact, that thing is like s- sort of smoother and less of a step change than you might think. Yeah. And we've also like tried some edited versions of it and haven't been blown away. And we're not, we're still alive, but like anthropic shadow, I guess. I guess that uh, I want to say one more thing, which is like, uh, yeah, I, I guess I think like, humans did this, Quentin's like, look, here's why we had a sharp left turn in evolution. We had cultural evolution and um, or we had cultural accumulation of information. And I'm like, yeah, that seems pretty legit. Won't models do that? Uh, and then like, also won't models do that and like not have to do the compression stuff where like they like pass it on as sentences to the next, they'll just like remember or something. Uh, and I'm like, man, isn't that like the same deal? Uh, and then I, I think importantly, Quentin's like, yeah, but that's not as much. The, the thing is, SGD is like more powerful than evolution. Evolution was doing stuff in a really dumb way. SGD is more powerful than that. And like does more changes to the parameters of models per time than evolution does or like per SGD step or whatever. Um, and like, uh, unless the cultural accumulation is like as much more powerful Sorry, unless like this, what, what, you know, the accumulation of information in models when they're like learning live uh, online is like as many times more information-y as like it was compared to evolution in humans, um, then yeah, we'll get a sharp left turn at about as fast, which by the way, it took like 10,000 fucking years. Um, but, uh, you know, like, it's not going to be, the, the ratio is going to be smaller, um, uh, like a lot smaller. Um, yeah, okay, I think that helped crystallize a piece for me that Quentin, you've probably said like 50 times, but <laughs> for whatever reason, I think I understand it better now, unless I'm again wrong, which is like, I don't know, we can speculate about um, sort of things that might be pretty fast capabilities gains, but this is a fundamentally different landscape. And on priors, you're maybe skeptical of that because uh, the way the machine learning algorithms work is already so efficient. And in fact, there are intelligent humans, many of them working full time to try to make that efficient. And so the idea that there would be a huge overhang there seems sort of broadly implausible to you. Yeah, that and also, or it's like not quite that. I think it's 
within the realms of possibility that there's, say, a five order of magnitude overhang in terms of our current okay. practices. But that overhang is not going to be like suddenly unleashed with a single insight. And the reason is because we've had like limited versions of all these insights and a bunch of previous insights and none of them were that big a deal. Right. The people have experimented with these insights and it seems like the reference class is like, yeah, there might be something like that, but it's not going to be sudden and a huge overhang. Yeah. Cool. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I am. Happy. What about the question from Daniel? Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, like, um, we can do we can do questions now. Um, Daniel wrote it. I could read it, but why not invite you to speak instead? Um, potentially because you can't speak. I don't know. Give that like ten seconds. Otherwise, I'll read it. Okay, I'm going to read it. I not remember exactly what you guys were talking about when he said the question, but I remember liking it. He says, couldn't you provide RL for alignment during the online learning so that it wouldn't be a factor of 1 billion to 1 and thus disanalogous to in-lifetime learning evolution? Uh, yeah, you could. Um, and this is like one of the advantages of thinking through scenarios or possible like fast takeoff scenarios at the level of like mechanistic ML processes, you can see where you might intervene in these sorts of scenarios and like ways we can experiment with analogous scenarios now in order to be prepared for like if things really do pop off as badly as uh, Ronnie thinks they might. Um, in fact, like the current research agenda, which I intend to post like Tuesday, uh, is basically about like how do we efficiently and scalably supervise um, AIs that are improving other AIs. Um, Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, Quentin. Could you could you explain the question? Because I am not sure I understood it from Divya's saying it. Oh, um. So my interpretation of the question is that this was asked when we were discussing like alternative optimizers that could arise in ML systems and that were like much faster and more efficient than SGD and whether we could like intervene on those optimizers in order to uh, inject our values or like control the rate at which they produce capabilities or so on and so forth. Um, and thereby like prevent us from being as badly blindsided as evolution was during its sharp left turn. Daniel is now a speaker. If you want to weigh in, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. More. I, well, that actually, um, I cut out a little bit during the um, the whole mic thing. Uh, cut me out. But yeah, basically, just the idea that um, Ronnie. I mean, you keep saying, "Well, what if we have this?" You know, the online learning allows for much faster um, capabilities uh, learning than what we had before. But presumably, there could also be, um, at least in principle, you could do some, uh, you know, RLHF or RLHF plus You're cutting out. Oh, no. I think you can't hear me, Daniel. We could hear you until the end, I think, and then I could not, at least. I think you were just about to solve alignment, and then you cut off. 
I hate I hate when that happens. <laughs> All right. Sadly, a real time conversation with Daniel may not be in the cards due to the audio quality, but I think there's enough to at least talk about some there. Yeah, it seems right. Yeah, Ronnie, if you want to talk about that question. Uh, I was right. in the process of understanding the question. So, like, the idea is um, we got the online learning, and it's, like, way faster than the SGD. Uh, and then, like, we do some stuff in between to something. Quentin, you probably understand the proposal better than I do. Well, my interpretation is that you have, like, these NL systems, and you want to train them like really well, better than SGD, and you found out some like incredible method to do it, uh, where like they learn from many contexts simultaneously by some method of transferring in context learning to like persistent improvements over time or something like that. That is not like happening behind the scenes, right? It's not. Like in-context learning happens in the tech that's being produced by the yeah, model. Yeah. And so you just like look at the text and then you can do stuff on that text. Like maybe you include some supervisor persona from with a language model, which like says no if bad things seem like they're happening or stuff like that. Or you can maybe like iteratively check your system on a number of benchmarks and track how quickly it's getting better at these benchmarks. And then like you're no longer as blindsided by seven capabilities jumps as compared to if those capabilities jumps just happened like in the background behind the scenes with SGDE that you don't really have eyes on and can't intervene on as easily. Does that make sense, Ronnie? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, okay. yeah, I, I, I agree that um, at least in principle, you can see some of this stuff happening. Um, and it's nice that like, it's probably in English. Um, yeah, that, that seems like a pretty nice scenario. Um, like, even if you can't see the like stuff that's producing the English, it's like, Nice that you can read the English. Uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, so I think, I, I don't know, I think what I got from that, um, the combination of Daniel, your question, and Quentin, your answer is something like, insofar as we can identify which parts of this process there might be a potential overhang and how that might go, then... Of course, it's good to watch out for that and to try to track it and understand it and maybe influence it. Oh, uh, I think the thing is, like, I was imagining, I don't know, like, it has something like an internal monologue. And then it, like, does some thinking and, like, finds a cool heuristic. And it's like, oh, this heuristic's awesome. Also happens to be written in English. And it's like, I'm going to add this heuristic to, like, how I prompt myself from now on. Um, and then we're like, cool. But then we notice that the heuristic written in English says, never trust a human. And we're like, oh, fuck. We don't, we don't want you to add that one to your prompts. Um, uh, so it's, like, nice that, like, the, like, at least on, like, the way that I was kind of, like, describing how this might go, uh, the, like, the sequential reasoning is, like, in English. 
um, as opposed to being an SGD, which like, you know, we can't really read the giant matrix multiplications or read the SGD steps. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think that's what was going on. Yeah, that's definitely one option for intervention. Although looking back at Daniel's actual comment, um, I think there might have been a subtlety of his point that we missed, which is that he said, couldn't you do RL during this process and thereby like ensure it isn't a billion to one factor advantage? And so my guess as to what he means by that point is that like even if you have an, a new inner optimizer or in-context optimizing process or whatever, which has a billion-to-one learning rate advantage over SGD, you don't necessarily have to like pull the cord all the way and just let it rip completely. You can be like, all right, the model has added a particular rule to its rule set. And now we shall stop its in-context learning and run a bunch of behavioral heuristic tests on it. And if it did a bad thing during the behavioral heuristic tests, we shall like do RL on the weights. And even though like the in-context learning is way faster when you let it go fully out, you can just like say no and apply the outer optimizer anyways. And thereby like uh, ensure there isn't that billion to one resource advantage between the in-context learning thing versus the reinforcement learning optimizer. Daniel, if you could either say something or give a thumbs up, if that captures what you were saying better, that would be cool. I'm guessing it does, but, but I don't my, know. My, my <laughs> internet's coming in and out. I actually couldn't hear that. Okay, never mind. Right. It seems good to me. Yep. Um, I pretty much want to end the conversation. I also want to thank you, Quentin. I had a ton of fun doing this, and I feel like I have a bunch of new thoughts, and like I understand your view much better than what I had just read the post. Um, so thanks for doing this. It was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and I don't know. I like also. I feel I feel happy that like I feel like. The next time I am talking to someone and they're like, what does Quentin think? I don't understand what he's saying. I feel like I can like do you a fair amount of justice or something. Um, and that's a pretty sweet gain for me. And also thank you, Divya, uh, just for like hosting this and putting it together and stuff. No, no, I'm super, I'm super grateful to both of you for doing this. I think mostly for the same reason. Quentin, I've been reading your less strong posts and I, I don't know, I thought I understood some things about them, but it was <laughs> way less than I now think I understand about them, which is probably still not perfect, but I think really is a lot more than before. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, it was very so, information dense from my perspective. Yeah, it is like a little concerning to hear this uh, from the perspective of someone who's trying to convey his view with his less wrong posts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry for being a vector of that update. It could be there are some other people who are getting it a lot better. Probably there are some. There definitely are some. Uh, or, I mean, there's definitely some who are getting it better. Uh, I am not sorry for being the vector of that update. I am happy to be the vector of that update. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. This is ambitious and not a promise. But maybe one day I'll try to, like, summarize the posts that we talked about 
um, and I'll show it to you. And we can compete on explaining your views. I feel like I'm so good at explaining things and maybe it's not true. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't know. That, that was awesome. Thank you very much. I'm probably going to head out. Mm-hmm. All, right. Cool. All right. Nice to meet you, Quentin. Bye, guys. Yeah, nice to meet you. All right. Yeah, thanks to both of you. All right. I think, I think I'm going to end the space. Bye, Oh. Yep, sounds good. Bye.